Now, what we want to do during the course of our studies together is we want to walk through predominantly five chapters in the apocalypse. We want to walk through chapters 11 and 16, chapter 19, and chapters 10 and 14. Now, you'll notice that we've grouped four of those chapters in two pairs, because one of the things we want to do over the course of our studies is to show you the intimate, critical, connecting link, for instance, between chapter 11 and chapter 16, to really come to terms with understanding the full measure of chapter 16, we need to have a good understanding of chapter 11, because chapter 11 is a platform allowing us to spring into chapter 16. So we'll see how those two chapters are intimately connected. Likewise, with chapters 10 and 14. Now, of course, chapter 14 takes us into the time period between Armageddon and the beginning of the millennium, the seventh vial the seven thunder judgments of Almighty God, the lamb upon Mount Zion, the harvest of the earth, the vintage of the earth. So that wonderful chapter, challenging as it is, we don't really come to terms with it in its full measure unless we see the critical link between 14 and chapter 10. So again, we're going to see how these two chapters, chapter 10 and 14, run together, hand in glove, likewise chapter 11 and chapter 16. And with our exhortation, God willing, on Sunday morning, looking at chapter 19, chapter 19 will overarch all of those chapters and pull them together in a very personal way. So that's one of the briefs that we have for our studies together uh, over this weekend and, of course, spilling into Wednesday evening. But what we also want to do, brothers and sisters and young people, is we want to see that our brethren and sisters who live right down through the corridor of time, they needed to know where they were with respect to God's purpose. They needed to know that God had not abandoned them. They needed to know, even though God walking in the nations, working those great big plans to bring the world ultimately to Armageddon and then the kingdom thereafter, the brothers and sisters needed to know that God was personally caring and involved with their lives. And these chapters will bring those things out. Our brothers and sisters who tried to live godly in Christ Jesus had to suffer all at the moment of Roman Catholicism, which we'll see in our hearts will go out to our brothers and sisters. And brothers and sisters, at the end of our time together, we want to be inspired by God's word, charged, prepared emotionally and mentally for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I think what we do a study, particularly the apocalypse, is to, well, we need to raise ourselves above the earth, as it were, and look down and see like a helicopter view and see where we are. So it probably is advantageous if we have a look at a, a big picture structure of the apocalypse and to see exactly where we're going to pick up our theme and our thoughts as we go through these studies together. Now, quite a number in this room will be familiar with the overall and the overarching structure of the apocalypse. We can break the book of Revelation into three major sections, the seals, the trumpets, and the vials. 
And of course, God was going to judge pagan Rome as he did in the first six seals outlined in Revelation chapter 6. They did not repent. Therefore, God rolled like a scroll and cast it aside. And in would come Constantine and Christianize the Roman world. Well, was Christian Rome better than pagan Rome? No, it was not. And therefore, God would bring judgment on Christian Rome. Now, we are going to focus our studies in that area of this large structure. We're going to pick up our studies this evening with the second part, the second part of the sixth trumpet. And this second part, I'll show you what I mean by that in a moment, the sixth trumpet being divided into two parts. This second part of the sixth trumpet is chapter 11. And chapter 11, as we said a moment ago, will allow us to spring into the seventh trumpet or the seven vials outlined in Revelation 16. So we're going to use that second part of the sixth trumpet, get our head around chapter 11 and allow that to be the the platform into which we'll launch into these, well, these seven vials. Then God, after having judged Christian Rome by these five and a half trumpets. So God is going to judge Christian Rome with five and a half trumpets. I'll show you what I mean by that in a moment. We're then going to look in our studies at God then bringing, they would not repent like pagan Rome, and therefore God judged them. And then we're going to have a look at the judgment that God brought on the Holy Roman Empire in these first five vials, the career of Napoleon, the third period, the one hour of the great earthquake. So we're going to see the second great earthquake. We're going to see the career of Napoleon bring judgment on the Holy Roman Empire. So this evening, through chapter 11, we're going to look at the second part of the sixth trumpet. Tomorrow morning... At the picnic, we're going to be having a look at the first five vials through the career of Napoleon. Then, God willing, on Sunday afternoon, we're going to be looking at the sixth vial in Revelation 16. And then on Wednesday evening, next week, God willing, we're going to be looking at the seventh vial, chapters 14 and chapter 10. Now, I just want to spend a minute or two, brothers and sisters, for those who are not so familiar, and I'm aware of the diverse nature of any Christadelphian audience when it comes to understanding the apocalypse, but you want to spend a couple of minutes with you just to show you the importance of understanding this sixth trumpet is in two parts. Now, God is going to judge Christian Rome. Now, what happened, of course, when paganism was removed? In chapter 8 and verse 1, the seventh seal is opened. And we read in chapter 8 and verse 1, and the seventh seal was opened, and there was silence. There was silence in heaven for about the space of half an hour. Now, what happens in Revelation 8 and verse 1? In comes Constantine. He has Christianized the whole Roman world. Paganism is gone. And when you come to Revelation 8 and verse 1 with the opening of the seventh seal, which, by the way, rolls right through to the beginning of the millennium, when Constantine is here, In chapter 8 and verse 1, we are A.D. 324. 
and this silence in the political heavens of Rome. But then the angels are going to work and bring the wrath of God upon this empire, this Christian Roman empire. And so what God is going to do, he's going to, and this is leading up to showing you how the sixth trumpet is in two parts. So what God is going to do by judging the Christian Roman world, he's going to use these first four trumpets in chapter 8, these wind trumpets, to bring judgment on one-third of the Christian Roman world, and that would be the Latin West. So in would come the four Germanic barbarians as they would sweep across the Danube and sweep across the Rhine, and they would come in and lop off one-third. That's Revelation 8. Then when we come to Revelation 9 and the first half of Revelation 9, we have the fifth trumpet, which would be the Saracens. And God is going to use the Saracens to lop off another one-third of the Christian Roman world, which would be the Hellenized East. So the Saracens, the children of the desert, are going to swarm Arabia. They're going to come into Palestine. They're going to sweep across North Africa, are the Saracens, through this fifth trumpet. They're going to come into Spain, and they're going to stop at Tua and be pushed back by Charlemagne's grandfather. So the Saracens will go no further. They'll take Spain. All the Saracens try to come around and take Constantinople, but God said Constantinople is reserved for the Turks, the first part of the sixth trumpet. So God has lopped off the Latin West with the German barbarians. He's lopped off the, Hel the Hellenized East through the fifth trumpet. Now, God is going to then, through the agency of the Turks, lop off this final third, the Hellenic East, through the first part of the sixth trumpet. Now, let's have a look at our Bibles now. Let's look at Revelation 9. Now, this is where the first part of the sixth trumpet is shown for us. Germanic barbarians have come in chapter 8. The Saracens have come in the first half of chapter 9. Now we pick up the Turks, the first part of the sixth trumpet, verse 13, Revelation 9. And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. So in would come the Turks, and it would be a Turkish flood. There'd be a wave of four Turkmen, four Turkmen tribes as they would sweep from the river Euphrates, bringing in the sixth trumpet a flood of Turks. That's the sixth trumpet. We're going to be looking at the sixth vial on Sunday afternoon, and God is going to dry up that Turkish flood. So in the sixth trumpet, flood the area with Turks. In the sixth vial, dry up that flood that was initiated in the sixth trumpet. The first part of the sixth trumpet. For you see, brothers and sisters and young people, as you sweep through this latter part of chapter nine, you might think you get to the end of the chapter and that's the end of the sixth trumpet. No. The sixth trumpet concludes in chapter 11. You turn a page and you have a look at verse 14 of chapter 11. This is where the sixth trumpet concludes. And chapter 10 splits the trumpet in two. 
So here we are in chapter 11 and verse 14. It says, the second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. For those who are not familiar with that, when you went to the end of chapter 8, having seen the four barbarians with the wind trumpets, you get to the end of chapter 8, and God says, there was an eagle flying in, in the heavens saying, woe, 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 by reason of the trumpet that is yet to sound. So brothers and sisters, wind trumpets, one, two, three, and four, chapter eight. Woe, woe, woe. So there are three woe trumpets yet to come. So woe trumpet one is the fifth trumpet. Woe trumpet two is the sixth. And woe trumpet three is the seventh. Hence, in Revelation 11 and verse 14, the second woe is past. In other words, the sixth trumpet is now finished. And that's chapter 11 and verse 14. And splitting the first half of the sixth trumpet, the Turks, with the second half of the sixth trumpet, God dealing over in the West with the area of France and Europe is the 10th chapter and God gave John a kingdom vision because after he read about what happened at the end of chapter 9, about this system that would not repent, it would not repent, it would not repent, John could well have been asking himself, will the system ever repent? And if he didn't get chapter 10 to lift him up and he was tumbling into chapter 11, he'd see the Catholic system at it again, persecuting the altar, the temple and the holy city. So God says, before we go into the second half of the sixth trumpet, just in case, John, you get depressed, I'm going to give you a kingdom. Will they ever stop, John's thinking? Will the system ever stop? And God says, yes. Chapter 10 and verse 6. And swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things that there are now. John, there is coming a time when there will be time no longer. John, if you think this system will not repent and they'll go on forever, they won't because there's coming a time. And John is lifted up with that kingdom vision of chapter 10. And then we open up chapter 11 and we spill into the second part. So God takes his judgmental searchlight after having used the Turks to judge the Hellenic East. God then in chapter 11, the second part of that trumpet, then swings the judgmental searchlight back to the west. And we pick up the story surrounding the events of the French Revolution. So you can see how we pick up the second, um, the second part of the sixth trumpet. And brothers and sisters, the important part about this being the platform that leads us into the vials is that you look at verse 14 of chapter 11. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. That is the seventh trumpet, full of the seven vials. And then you get five verses at the end of chapter 11, which summarise, summarise the seventh trumpet. But the detail of the seventh trumpet is in Revelation 16. So to follow the chronology of the story, you would read Revelation 11, verse 14. The sixth trumpet is past, second woe. And the third woe, or the seventh trumpet, is coming quickly. 
To follow the chronology of the story, then you would turn over to chapter 16 and verse 1 and start reading the continuation of the story, which begs a question. If the chronology of the story takes us from chapter 11, verse 14, after which we then should start reading chapter 16 and verses 1 through the chapter, why then is chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14 and chapter 15 in the way? Now, that's a very good question and there are some very good answers and we don't have time to cover that. If we did, we'd take up 10 or 15 minutes of our precious time in the study this evening. But we can chat about that. Why, if the chronology, and it is, going from verse 14 of chapter, we spring straight into chapter 16. Why are those four chapters in the way? Very good reason why they're there. They've got to be there. And that's something we can chat about a little later. Well, brothers and sisters, so we're going to use chapter 11 to spring into our subsequent studies out of chapter 16. Now, our theme, and they stood upon their feet, and the same hour there was a great earthquake for study one. Now, here's chapter 11. Now, you won't read. You won't read the text there. That's the King James Version. But we're going to look at some structures, some, some scaffolds. We're going to look at some colours in a moment. And, and, and we, we, in, one, in one study, brothers and sisters, we would not, we would not even attempt to do a verse-by-verse -verse study nor should we, not in one study. But what we want to do is paint a broad brush picture, look at some scaffolds, look at some structures, so that you can say, I, I, I know now, I know, I know what the gist of this is, I know how this works. We'll fill in some detail to give the drama the colour that it needs, but you can go away saying, I've got this. I've got the structure and the fabric of this chapter. And you can go away then and start filling, filling in the detail as you see fit. But we've got a challenge here, brothers and sisters, because here is a chapter filled with graphic symbology, filled with detail. We've got a challenge here because this chapter, chapter 11, covers a sweep of history of nearly 1,500 years. And therefore, it's important that we do look at that structure. Now, very much like chapter 16, which we haven't looked at yet, which we will later, this chapter, notwithstanding the last five verses of the chapter, which is a summary of, of the seventh trumpet, this chapter climaxes in the second great earthquake, the French Revolution. And we're going to open up a folio of evidence and prove unequivocally that we are talking about the revolution in France and all the amazing things that happened leading up to that. But this is where this chapter is taking us, climaxing in the second great earthquake. The first one, of course, was the removal of pagan Rome. The third one we're going to be considering in our studies on Wednesday evening. So inexorably, we're leading to that climax in this chapter of this second great earthquake. Three in the apocalypse, three great earthquakes. Now, in this chapter, brothers and sisters, as a structure, as a scaffold, there are three major players. The first major player in the drama is in verse 1 and 2, and this major player is given three titles. The temple, the altar, and the holy city. These are the saints. 
These are our brothers and sisters in Christ, given those three titles. And we are told that our brothers and sisters are going to be measured. It's a time measure. They're going to feel the rod of chastisement and correction, the rabdos, which that word there is, a rod of trial and persecution and chastisement. They're going to feel this rod over a period of 42 months. So they're going to feel, as they stand before God trying to live godly, they're going to suffer awful persecution, are our brothers and sisters, the temple, the altar, and the holy city. More a bit about that in a moment. But they're going to feel it for 42 months. Now, that's an interesting expression. That's one of the easiest time periods in the apocalypse. I'm sure most of you in this audience have got written in your margin that 42 months is 1,260 years. If there's any in the audience that haven't come across that before, 42 months, 30 days in a Jewish month, 30 multiplied by 42, 1260 days on a day for a year principle, 1260 years. Having said that, we're now introduced to the second major player of the drama of chapter 11, and they're given four titles. The second group or major player are called my two witnesses, the two olive trees, the two lampstands, and in verse 10, these two prophets. Now, I want to say something very, very clear and emphasize it. These are not the brothers and sisters. The two witnesses of chapter 11 are not the saints. The brothers and sisters are there. Oh, yes, you read through Eureka, and I love Eureka to bits. You read the section, Brother Thomas, it's a little, it gets a little bit challenging. Third section of Elpis Israel, Brother Thomas's exposition is, I believe, much clearer than in Eureka. But you really got to have your head right in the right space to try and work through it in Eureka. But there's no doubt whatever in my mind and, of course, in Brother Thomas's mind and lots of brethren, these are not the brothers and sisters in Christ. And we'll show you why they're not. They are two witnesses religious and political or secular, two witnesses, and they are going to speak out against someone. And when they speak out, there's violence. And when they speak out, they're going to speak out for a 1,203 score days. Now, this is interesting because 42 months and 1,260 days is exactly the same length of time. They're both 1,260 years. Now, the question is, why does God write them differently? Why does God attribute the same time period but writes it 42 months with respect to the saints and then changes the wording and, and expresses it this way? Why not put 42 months for both of them or put 1,260 days for both? There's a reason. There's two reasons, actually as to why they're written differently, which we'll explore in a moment. But here are these two witnesses. They're speaking out against someone. They're standing against someone. They're not the brothers and sisters because they fight. We don't do that. We won't do that until the Lord Jesus Christ commissions us to take up the sword in godliness and to rid this world of all its wickedness. 
that holiness might reign. We don't do it now, but the witnesses do. They fight over this period of them speaking out this 1,260 days. Well, they also take peace from the earth. They shut heaven that it rain not. And in Psalm 72, rain and peace are used together in Psalm 72. So shutting the heavens that it rain not is telling us that these witnesses are taking peace from the earth. Brothers and sisters don't do that. They try to bring peace to the earth. What else do we read about these two witnesses? Well, we read in verse 7, they are killed. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the abyss will make war against the witnesses, will overcome them and kill them. Well, what else do we read about the witnesses? We read in verse 11 that they come back to life. Where they fall down, they come back to life again. So that's the second major player in this section of Revelation 11. Now, the third major player is the group that the witnesses stand against or speak out against. And the third major player are given four titles or three titles, the God of the earth, the beast, and in verse 10, twice used, they that dwell upon the earth, they that dwell upon the earth. Now, I'm sure some of you, many of you in the audience would have that the God of the earth, you'd have a quotation, wouldn't you? Second Thessalonians chapter 2, the God of the earth, the papacy, sitting in the temple of God, claiming that he is God on earth. So here are the witnesses standing not before the God of the earth, in the Greek, standing against the God of the earth, the papacy. So there we have, brothers and sisters uh, and young people, the three major players in this drama. Now, we want to focus because the witnesses take up the majority of this chapter leading to this second great earthquake. We don't have time to work through some of the amazing things in verses 1 and 2. Let's just say this in summary with respect to verses 1 and 2 by comparing them to the witnesses. We made the point a minute ago that the holy city and the two witnesses, well, the holy city is trodden down for 42 months. The two witnesses are going to witness for 1260 days. It's the same period, as we said, that's expressed in different terms. Why? Two reasons. The first reason is this. God wants us to clearly understand that the saints are contrasted to the anti-papal witnesses. They are not the same. That's the first reason why these two same time period are expressed differently. The second reason why they're expressed differently is because both of them have a different starting point and a different finishing point. Now, with the treading down or the persecution of the brothers and sisters in Christ, this would begin, and we get our warrant for this from Revelation 13, which we're not going to look at this evening. But I want you to know that when you do go, which we won't, but if you went to Revelation 13, you would see this expression, 42 months used, as we have here in Revelation 11. Now, there's the key. And if we go to Revelation 13, which you will do on your own leisure, and you work out this expression, the dragon gives power to the beast to continue 42 months. When you've worked out who the dragon is and when the dragon gives power to the beast, whoever the beast is, then you will know the time period when the persecution of the saints begin. 
Now, let me say this in passing, brothers and sisters. The dragon in Revelation 13 is the Catholic emperors in Constantinople. In Rome, they ratified what the Bishop of Rome said anyway. He said, I am the greatest bishop. The Bishop of Rome had said for a long time, I am more powerful than the Bishop in Constantinople. I am more powerful than the Bishop in, 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 uh, in Antioch and in Alexandria. Uh, I'm more powerful than any of them. He believed that for many, many years. But it wasn't until the dragon, one of the Catholic emperors in Constantinople, ratified that imperially that we start to see the persecution in an enormous way of the brothers and sisters. And in passing, I'll simply say this. Two men were involved as the dragon in the East. Justinian got the ball rolling. 75 years later, focus cemented it. So it took two men and it took 75 years for finally the beast, the bishop in Rome, to be given power to do what he likes. When that happened, our brothers and sisters, as the holy city of Revelation 11 began to be trodden down. And that happened with the Emperor Focus 75 years after Justinian in 608 through 610. And that beast would continue for 1260 years until finally the temporal power of the papacy would be removed 1260 years later, 1868 through 1870, which we'll pick up in our studies in the sixth vial. I want to say that just in passing. But I want to focus on this because this is the bulk of Revelation 11, the two witnesses. So the starting point for the treading down of our brothers and sisters started in 600 AD and would conclude 1260 years later. Now, I want to look at the witnesses, brothers and sisters. These two olive trees, these two lampstands, when did they start to witness against the papacy? And when would they finish? Well, like we did with Revelation uh, 11 and the 42 months, when we went to Revelation 13 to get this key to unlock when this time period would begin, we did the same with Revelation 12. You see, in Revelation 11, there's 1260 days with respect to the two witnesses. Now, the key is to go to Revelation 12 and we see the same expression used. And we are going to see when the, brother, when the witnesses will begin to stand up against the papacy and they will do it for 1,260 years. Now, to do this, brothers and sisters, we're going to go into Revelation 12 and we pick up the verse in Revelation 12 and verse 6. You can turn that over, if you will, to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 6. And I've got that on the screen, if you can read it. If not, uh, then you can follow it in your Bible. Now, here is the clue. Revelation 11 says, and the witnesses would witness for 1,260 days. When? When did that start? When did it finish? Here's the key. Verse 6, Revelation 12. And the woman, whoever she is at the moment, fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there. Now, here's our key. Here's our expression, 1,200 and 60 days. Ah, now if we can find out when she fled and was placed, now listen to this. The record says there the woman fled into the wilderness. The woman, whoever she was, was placed 
in a wilderness state. She was put into a wilderness state by someone who did not like her. Right? Now, to continue the story of this woman, whoever she is, being placed into a wilderness state, we read verse 14, continuing the story. And to the woman were given two wings of, not a great eagle, two wings of the great eagle, the Roman Empire. So the extremities of the Roman Empire was the refuge to which the woman fled as she was excommunicated into a wilderness state by someone who did not like her. And that someone who did not like her happened to be the other woman in this chapter. Now, you know in chapter 12 that we begin with a woman in verses 1 through 2 who is clothed with the sun, she has the moon under her feet, and she has a crown of 12 stars. We're given the upfront picture before we stream back and given the detail from verses 3 through the rest of the chapter. So here's a woman. The woman, very simply, brothers and sisters, is the truth gone bad. She is the Roman Catholic Church. And there is a man-child who is going to be born of this woman. And, of course, that man-child that was going to be born is Constantine. And when was Constantine born? Constantine was born politically in 312. So when Constantine streamed down from York, beat Maxentius at the Milvian Bridge battle, he came in and he was politically born, the man-child, in 312. But a newborn baby takes a while to really come to understand who their mother is. And it took Constantine a couple of years, three in fact, to work out who his mum was because there were these sects, these different groups of people that were jostling for, for favour from this Christian emperor. And they say, pick me, pick me, pick me. And after three years, Constantine goes, you, the Catholic sect, I will adorn you with the sun. Take political power. He's found out who his mother is, the Catholics. I'm going to give the moon under your feet. You become the state religion. And as a victory crown, the pagan emperors, the 12 pagan emperors that had existed up until the time of John in AD 96. So here is Constantine, the man-child, found out who his mother is and adorns his mother with political power. Well, there was a group of religious people that went, no, we have nothing to do with politics. We have nothing to do with the courts of the emperor. We will have nothing to do with you. To which Constantine said, if you don't shape up and if you don't adorn yourself with what I've adorned this person with, I will excommunicate you. I will place you in a wilderness state. So there she is. So the woman is excommunicated. She is the protesting woman and she is protesting and witnessing against the newly formed Catholic state church. Here's the beginning of the witnesses. Here's the religious witness. And in the first instance, this woman was the Donatists or were the Donatists who were in North Africa. Well, that's one group of witnesses. But in Revelation 11, there are two. There's a religious one and a secular one. Well, that's the religious woman in the first instance, the religious witness, the Donatists. Well, here's the other. Verse 16 of Revelation 12. And the earth helped this 
religious protesting woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood. Here's an earth. Here are the circumcellions of North Africa. Here is a political bunch of people, not really religious, but they would not be shackled with Rome. They would not have the serpent or the dragon, Constantine in the first instance. Constantine is the Christian serpent and the Christian dragon. After Constantine, it was his sons that became the Christian serpent and the Christian dragon. And after the sons of Constantine, it became the Christian Catholic emperors in Constantinople who became the serpent and the dragon. So here you have, in Revelation 12, the beginning of the witnesses of Revelation 11, the religious witness and the political witness, the circumcellions who would not be shackled with the chains of Rome and they were determined to fight with clubs and anything they had to beat off the Catholics, and they become a bit of a protector to the woman. So two witnesses, brothers and sisters, the two witnesses of Revelation 11. Well, if the two witnesses are there in Revelation 12, does Revelation 12 reveal, perchance, the altar, the temple, and the holy city of Revelation 11? I mean, we've got the two witnesses there. Should the altar, the temple, and the holy city be in Revelation 12? Oh, yeah. And there it is, the remnant of her seed. All three of them there in Revelation 12, the key being 1,260 days. So there, brothers and sisters, in chart form are the altar, the temple, and the holy city, 42 months beginning there, and ending there. There in chart form are the two witnesses of Revelation 11, starting in 3.12, protesting against the newly born man-child Constantine and going through to 15.72. Now, let's pick up in chart form and now follow the drama as it unfolds in Revelation chapter 11. I'll just give you 30 seconds just to draw breath, just to shake your heads. Don't shake that information out of your heads, though. All right? Now let's pick it up and move swiftly through, picking up the details that we need to look at Revelation 11. Here's the timeline. The two witnesses, the anti-papal witnesses that began in Revelation 12, AD 312, the political birth time of Constantine, the woman and the earth. If you don't have these two cross-references next to Revelation 11 and verse 3, Revelation 12, verse 6 and verse 14 through 17, it's pretty good to write those in your margin because this is the beginning of the witnesses locking into Revelation 11 and verse 3. And we know that they will witness for 1,260 years, bringing us to 1572. And some of us in this audience are aware of the tragedy, the hallmark in history and prophecy of what happened in 1572. 
This would be the massacre on St. Bartholomew's Day. The slaying of the witnesses begin. Superintended, auspiced by that woman, Catherine Demichi, came out and supervised the slaying of witnesses who were both religious and political, the Huguenots, who became so powerful, so potent in their political and religious witnessing, they became the stand for all Protestants throughout Europe. There is Catherine Demichi supervising, superintending the slaughter of the Huguenots, the witnesses in 1572. But I want you to note something, brothers and sisters and young people, something very important, otherwise we'll stumble over this. You see there we've got the slaying of the witnesses began. Now look at this. Look at verse 7 of Revelation 11. If you haven't done this before or come across this, we need to get this just implanted in our mind, otherwise we'll trip over this. Verse 7, Revelation 11. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast, the Roman Catholic system that ascendeth out of the abyss, shall make war against the witnesses, the Huguenots in this instance, shall overcome them and kill them. 1572 is verse 7. But when you come to verse 8, it's not 1572. Verse 8 is 1685. There are 113 years between verse 7 and verse 8 because these witnesses will begin to be slain. And for 113 years, they will be slain. They'd be slain. They'd come back, a bit of reprieve, and they'd get, get, get persecuted again. They'd come back a bit, a bit of a breath of fresh air, and all this would go up and down until when you get to 1685, the witnesses are totally, completely, politically and religiously gone. Then they lay down for three and a half days and come back. They don't lay down in verse 7, dead. They lay down dead in verse 8, and that's 1685. So don't stumble over those two. You'll see that as we walk through that now. So here we are, brothers and sisters, the beginning of the slaying, and it would take 113 years until they were finally, totally, completely, and utterly politically and religiously gagged. Not totally annihilated. Their dead bodies would lay in the street and be seen but they were impotent, but they're there. They didn't cart them away and put them into graves. No, said somebody in Revelation 11. Don't bury them. Leave them there so they can come back. We know the story, some of us, some not. But in 1572, brothers and sisters, what happened? There was a man called Henry of Navarra. He was the king of Navarra, was Henry. Features in this story. Now, if you've got good eyes, there's Navarra there in green. There's France there in blue. So you've got this man, Henry, King of Navarra, who was a Huguenot leader. He was christened a Catholic. His mother said, no, that will not do. You need to be a Protestant. So he converted to become a Protestant. He's the, he's the King of Navarra, and he is a Huguenot leader. He's coming into Paris in 1572 to marry that woman's daughter, to marry Catherine de Medici's daughter. So he comes into Paris with all his friends, and they all flock into Paris, all these Huguenots. Now, that starts to trouble the French king, who's a Catholic, and it starts to trouble the hierarchy of France. They're going, we don't like this. All these Huguenots, 
This, this is not good. Something could go amiss. I think we need to do them in. I think we need, while well, we got them in, in, in Paris, I think we need to do them in. I think there might be something afoot here. And so they concocted a plan. So that when they rang these bills, they would slaughter as many Huguenots as possible. And therefore, brothers and sisters, when Henry of Navarre came in to his wedding, six days, six days after his wedding, they rang the bells to the Catholics and they slew in one day 3,000 Huguenots. And in the months that ensured, they slew a further 68,000. 71,000 witnesses were slain. And what was the Catholics' response? Were they remorseful? Were they regretful? No. Verse 10, chapter 11. How do the Catholics relate to the slaying of 71,000 witnesses? Well, verse 10. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them. They'll make merry and shall send gifts one to another. Because these two prophets, the witnesses, tormented them that dwell upon the earth. So they had a party. They minted a coin. And there is Pope Gregory XIII minted a coin as a commemorate coin of the slaying of 71,000 witnesses. And on the other side of the coin, you've got these two angels. One's got a sword and the other's got a cross. And there's an angel there with a little canopy over its head looking on, no doubt, with pleasurable delight at the slaying of men, women and children, brothers and sisters, our God in heaven and our Lord Jesus Christ in heaven were looking down at this awful picture. Yes, it was prophesied. Yes, it was recorded in the book of Revelation, but it was awful that these witnesses should be slain. Well, brothers and sisters, Henry escaped with the skin of his teeth. He wasn't slain in that slaughter of the Huguenots. In fact, the events turned out that as a few years rolled by, We no longer now have Henry, King of Navarra, the leader of the Huguenots. We now have in 1598, Henry IV, King of France. So events have turned around that now this this Huguenot leader, this King of Navarra, he's now Henry IV and he's the first of the Bourbon kings. And the last of the line of the Bourbon kings was Louis XVI who was beheaded in the French Revolution of 1789. So here we are, Henry now, Henry IV, King of France. He is now a Bourbon king, and he had to get get into that position by by being converted to a Catholic. So he's 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 now changed sides from being a Protestant to being a Catholic. But, of course, he had a problem. Being a Catholic and now being the first Bourbon king, Henry IV, King of France, he's got a problem because he's got all these Huguenot friends. So what does he do? He then drafts up the Edict of Nantes or the Edict of Nantes. And there's the edict, religious toleration. This is to placate. He's now the king. This is, this is the Catholic throne. He's the king, Henry IV. But he's got all these friends. And there's, there's, uh, there's Nantes there. Nantes there. And there's a copy of the edict, a, 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 a draft document of religious toleration and freedom. So you can see, brothers and sisters, they begin to be slain in 1572. And there's ups and downs, ups and downs until 1685. 113 years, 113 years they'll be slain. And then that bit of breath, here's a breath of fresh air. Here's a bit of relief in this up and down until we get to 1685. Well, he didn't last long as King Henry IV. He was assassinated by a fanatical Catholic. And then Henry IV's son, Louis XIII, wants to get rid of 
the Edict of Nantes. But he's too weak. He can't do it. And so, Henry, uh, so Louis Thirteenth, son, Louis XIV, comes on the scene. Ah, now we're here in 1685. And now it's Louis XIV, the grandson of Henry IV, previously Henry of Navarre. Louis XIV, the sun king, the king of France that built the palace at Versailles. He's strong enough to get rid of the Edict of Nantes. And we have here that milestone in history and prophecy where that edict would be revoked. And he would now totally, utterly, completely gag politically and religiously the witnesses. They'd fall down now totally impotent. Still there, waiting to come back. Now, what Louis XIV did, brothers and sisters, he said to the people in France, I'm Louis XIV, you're the people in France, particularly the Huguenots. Louis XIV said this, get out of France. You've got 15 days. 15 days, get out of France. Take everything with you and go. Over a million fled. Some went to America, some went to South Africa, some went to England. And they ripped out the fibre of France, the tradesmen, the traders, the lawyers, ripped it out. Henry said, if you're not going to be a Catholic, uh, um, Louis XIV said, if you're not going to be a Catholic, get out. And they fled. Well, brothers and sisters, you could well be asking yourself the question, is this really, is this chapter really about France? I mean, is it? Is this really about the Henry of Navarra's and the Henry of the Fourth's and the Bourbon? Is this really about Catherine de' Medici? Is this really about the slay? Is it? Here's a verse, brothers and sisters, that places us on rock-solid ground. Have a look at this verse. Verse 8 and then verse 13 of Revelation chapter 11. Is it really about France? Is this really about the French Revolution? Second Great Earthquake? Really? Look at verse 8. Let's unpack this folio of evidence. It says there, their dead bodies shall lie, these are the witnesses. This is 1685. Verse 8. Their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Nothing about France there. Nothing about Paris. What about this great city? Who's the great city? We know, brothers and sisters, that in the apocalypse, it, it, it's Rome. I mean, Revelation chapter 14 and verse 8, that great city, Babylon, is fallen, is fallen. Revelation 16 verse 19, and that great city was divided into three parts. Revelation 17 verse 18, and the woman is that great city that reigns over the kings of the earth, Rome, in the time of the Apostle John. Revelation 18 and verse 10 and verse 16, alas, alas, Babylon, the hour of her judgment, that great city is come. So all those four quotations, we're told the great city is Rome. That's nothing to do with Paris. It has nothing to do with France. Where are we going? Where's the photo of evidence? Well, brothers and sisters, if we were to go back, which we won't, but if we were to go back to the, to the, to the seals, uh, Revelation chapter 6, 
And, you know, you had your first seal, the white horse, second seal, the red horse, then the third seal, the black horse, and the fourth seal, the yellow, greeny, sickly horse. When you go to the third, the black horse, the rider on the black horse had a pair of balances. It was awful. The taxation in that period of the Roman world was awful, and it created an awful famine and disease and pestilence. Ah, but the first emperor of the third seal, the black horse in Revelation, the first emperor was Caracalla. And Caracalla brought in this awful heavy burden of taxation, taxed all these people in Rome so that he could live a luxurious lifestyle, him and his mates. And so he said, if you're in the city of Rome, you've got to pay your taxes. Well, the people out in the provinces went, we dodged a bullet there. We're living in the provinces. Provinces, we don't have to pay tax because we're not a citizen of Rome. Well, Caracalla says, well, I'm changing the rules. I'm now making the city of Rome the whole empire. So Caracalla made the frontiers of the Roman world the city. Therefore, when you come to this great city, we're talking about the Roman world. We're talking about Catholic Europe. And there is a street in Catholic Europe where the bodies fall down. And this street in the Greek is the broad place or the plateau. This would be a major thoroughfare of support to the Roman world. And therefore, brothers and sisters, France was Papal Rome's special protector. And France was the principal thoroughfare, the street of the great city of spiritual Babylon. And France was always called the eldest son of the church because it, were the, it was the Franks, the Frankish barbarians, who were the first of the barbarians to be converted to, to, to Catholicism through Clovis. Clovis was a Frankish barbarian, and he became converted to Catholicism and his men thereafter. So they were called the eldest son of the church, being the first of the barbarians to be converted. So here we are in the great Roman world. There's a major support base, and France was a major support base for Rome, for Roman Catholicism. Is that enough information? Not for me, it's not. Have a look at verse 13 of Revelation chapter 11. And the tenth part of the city... A tenth part of Catholic Europe fell. A tenth part, brothers and sisters and young people, there are the ten toes of Nebuchadnezzar's image. There are the ten horns of the beast. And of these ten barbaric kingdoms, it was the Franks, the French, that fell in this great earthquake. Is that enough information? Not for me. Have a look at this. Here are the witnesses. Here are some of the religious witnesses. 1639, way, way before the French Revolution, Thomas Goodwin said this, by the tenth part of the city, Revelation 11, I understand some one-tenth part of Europe. 1689, Pierre Giraud, the tenth part of the city which here fell, Revelation 11, will at some future time appear to be the kingdom of France. Pretty good. Where a revolution will take place about the year 1785, not bad. 
a little bit out, but not bad when you're saying that in 1689 or thereafter. And a separation from the papacy will follow. Oh, but look at this, brothers and sisters. 1687, Yark Philippo. As the King of France did his utmost to enhance the glory of popery, as did Louis XVI in the French Revolution, it will be the King of France who will mostly contribute to her ruin, as did Louis XVI in the French Revolution. I take it for granted first that the city here mentioned in Revelation 11 is Babylon, that is, the Papal Empire, the Church of Rome, the Empire of the Antichrist. Why should there be any hesitation in concluding that this tenth part of the city which shall fall is France? They are witnesses who did not have the truth. But they held up their lampstand like a little lampstand and tried to dispel the gloomy darkness of papacy as best they could. God raised them up. They didn't have the truth, and they could see that as clear as a bell. We should see it much, much more clearly, and we should be moved much, much more than these witnesses because we have the truth, brothers and sisters. And we've got Christadelphians that are saying, ah, who can understand the apocalypse? Make what you will of it. If it works for you, interpret it the way it fits your life. That's what some brethren say. What a shock thing that is, brothers, when this is a love letter from the Lord Jesus Christ to inspire his bride that they might be ready for his coming. They could see it as clear as a bill. We should see it much, much more clearly. Well, brothers and sisters, where also our Lord was crucified. There was a major thoroughfare, France, in the great Roman world, and our Lord Jesus Christ in the pagan Roman world, yes, was crucified in the little street of Judea, a province then of the great Roman city. What an amazing thing. Well, you know, brothers and sisters, have you been to Paris? Kristen and I went to Paris, and some of the things you see, it's almost unbelievable. Now, there's the, pal there, there's the place, De La Concorde, and you cross the bridge over there if you're living on that side, and you come here into this area here, the place, De La Concorde, and right there, brothers and sisters, right there is an obelisk. And that obelisk is smack where the guillotine was positioned that beheaded Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette in the French Revolution. Now, here we are in Revelation chapter 11. Their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. Yes, immorality. I get it. Yes, slavery and bondage. I get it. But it just so happened that God allowed France to put an Egyptian obelisk where the guillotine of the French Revolution was in Paris. And where did they get that obelisk? They got it from Ramesses II's temple. And there is where it should have been. And the French took it out and brought it over here and placed it right where the guillotine was. <laughs> There's Egypt. All over Paris, brothers and sisters. If you then turn and walk up the Tourelise Gardens and you're heading towards the Louvre Museum, which was a palace back in those days, what will you come across? <gasps> There's where Catherine de' Medici superintended the slaughter of the Huguenots. And what's there? Four Egyptian glass pyramids, even where Sodom and Egypt are, where the bodies fell down. And when you go through the streets of Paris, you see Egypt all over the place. They call that the Fair of Cairo, that building. Look at it. It's in Paris. 
This hotel here, which is the residence of the German ambassador to France, look at the Egyptian, you can't see it probably well there, but there's Egyptian hieroglyphics there, and they've got the lotus flower just on the top of these pillars. And there's a fountain in Paris dedicated to the wars of Napoleon, one of which was the Battle of the Pyramids when Napoleon defeated the Mamelukes down in Egypt. What an amazing thing in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. And these things are pretty above us that we might, we might tremble in awe at this book that we've got, that we understand, that we can read and see our brothers and sisters who saw this as prophecy. We see it as history. They saw it as prophecy like we see 1967, like we see 1948, like we see the Russian movements at the moment in the Ukraine. They saw these events like we see these now. Then, brothers and sisters, if that's not enough evidence that this chapter is about this French Revolution and this second great earthquake, have a look at this. Their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Now, time's nearly up. I'm very aware of the clock. I'm watching it, and we're not going to go super, super late. But I just need you to... No, we're not finishing yet, so don't get excited, brothers and sisters. Just need you to just take 30 seconds. I just need you with me for a couple of minutes, and then we'll start to draw our study to a conclusion. To a conclusion. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. The dead bodies will lay in the street for three and a half days. Now, we've got there 105 years. Now, here's a problem. How do you get three and a half days equaling 1685 to 1789, 105 years? How do you do that? Now, let, me, let me just explain it this way. If you were to go to verse 1 of chapter 11, let's have a read of that. Verse 1 of chapter 11. Well, verse 2. Verse 2 of chapter 11. But the court, which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles. And the holy city should be trodden underfoot 42 months. That's easy. That's an easy time period, 42 months. Yeah, 30 days in a month times 42, 12, 60 days, day for a year. I get that. Brothers and sisters, and I say this respectfully, if God was to be consistent in chapter 11, I say that reverently, if God was to be consistent in that approach of the way in which time periods are written, God would have done this following the pattern of verse 2. And the dead bodies laid in the street for three and a half months. We would have went so simple. 42 months, time to buy 30. Three and a half months, time to buy 30. Get 105 days, day for your principal, 105 years. Easy. Or God could have done this. He could have adopted the same pattern as the witnesses. The witnesses were witnessing for 1,260 days. God would have followed the same pattern. God would have said, and the dead bodies lay on the street for 105 days. We went, yeah, that's easy. We've been there before. We know that recipe. 105 days, day for you, 105 years. Why didn't God do that? Why didn't God choose one of those two? And we wouldn't be scratching our heads and thinking, oh, what, what, what is this? Quadratic equation or something. What is this? Why didn't God do that? Anyone got an answer? No, 
You wouldn't leave a dead body because that does not fit the decorum of the symbol. Decorum is appropriateness. It's not an appropriate symbol. There's a scriptural quotation by the Lord Jesus Christ that talks about what happens to a body. What's the quote? After the fourth day, the body stinks. After the fourth day, and God said, this is appropriate. Three and a half, not four, not five, three and a half. And before these bodies decay and disappear off the scene, they're coming back to life. So God says, before corruption and total oblivion, they're going to come back to life. So he says three, so he squeezes and squeezes, zip files, zip files, this time period. Now, these days, what days are they? Well, brothers and sisters, they're lunar days, like the phases of the moon. And we've got a warrant for that because we started this chapter with 42 months. Months, lunar months. So there's a lunar flavor at the very beginning of a chapter. And we come through here and we've got lunar days. Now, what's a lunar day? You might be thinking, oh, Steve, don't do this to me at this time of the night. What's a lunar day? It's simply this. Our Earth revolves on its axis once every 24 hours. That's a day. Not the moon. The moon goes around the Earth once every 29 point something something. Rounding it off as the Jews do. Our moon goes around the Earth once every 30 of our days. So that's one lunar day, 30 of ours. Two lunar days, 60. Three lunar days, 90. A half a lunar day, 105 of our days. So these lunar days, brothers and sisters, these lunar days are 105 of our days, 105 years. So in summary, here's the equation. The death of the witnesses, they would die politically, Three and a half days later, they'd be raised politically. Three and a half days is 105 years. They cannot remain in a state of non-decay for 105 days. Therefore, the decorum of the symbol requires another solution. And the solution we give fits all the evidence of the rest of the chapter. It fits the context of the prophecy. There's no other solution that fits the context. And therefore, brothers and sisters, it takes the moon to revolve around the earth 30 of our days, it does it once. And therefore, one lunar day is 30 of ours, three and a half is three and a half times 30 of ours, which is 105 days, which is 105 years. What an amazing thing the Bible is. Now, we'll finish our study on this note, brothers and sisters. If you think that's not enough to, to convince you, I sometimes see the angels picking up the pens of historians who don't read Revelation necessarily, they don't read Eureka, haven't got a clue, but the angel guides their hand that you and I might thrill to what they've written, knowing God has put it down to thrill you and me because we have a knowledge of this book. Have a look at this. If this evidence is still not enough for you. This was written by an historian, Belloc, the French Revolution. The Huguenots, he said, in page 231, though no longer permitted to exist as a state within a state, remain for the hundred years between the revocation of the Edict of Nantes and the outbreak of the French Revolution, listen to this, a powerful 
an ever watchful body. <laughs> Does that do anything to you? That's in historian. They remained a powerful, and God says, don't bury them. They're not going to decay three and a half days. The decorum of the sim. They remained a powerful and ever watchful body. And therefore, brothers and sisters, they're going to come on their feet. And in the French Revolution, they're going to stand up and bring terrible grief to France, to Louis XVI, to Marie Antoinette. But for you and me, brothers and sisters, we thrill that we understand these time periods. Now, I think I'm going to finish it there. I'm going to finish there. We've got a few more things we could have talked about, but there's no good doing that when we get a little tired and it's getting toward the end of the week. So I'm going to flick through this, flick through this, flick through this, and flick through this and say, brothers and sisters, that in the French Revolution, when the reign of terror gripped that nation four years after the revolution broke out, it was a time that became the stepping stone and the setting for the opening of Revelation 16 and verse 1. In this terrible time of bloodshed and terror, a man is going to emerge called Napoleon who's going to take unwittingly the vials of Almighty God and he's going to pour them out on the Holy Roman Empire. So God willing, in our study tomorrow morning, we're going to look at the theme, go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God. Thank you. The theme as we have there on the screen, go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God. Now, last evening, as we tracked through a portion of Revelation 11, we were amazed and thrilled at the inspirational accuracy of God's word and prophecy. So early in the piece, change the microphone. And what we did was we worked through, in brief, this timeline that we have there. And what we found, brethren and sisters, is we got to the end there and we saw how the witnesses fell down in 1685 after 113 years of being killed, being killed. Finally, they were utterly, completely, politically and religiously gagged. And they will remain in that state for a period of 105 years. But the witnesses were coming back and they were going to stand on their feet and they were going to become a platform, a springboard to bring us into this 16th chapter of the book of Revelation. And what we see as the witnesses began to stand, we see is a train coming down the track and it is out of control. So as the witnesses stand up in France, we find brothers and sisters, we are now here young people in 1789. France is in absolute peril, going down the drain quick smart. Louis XVI is facing a crisis he has never met before. And there is the French assembled parliament 
called together by Louis XVI, the King of France. And we pick up the theme as we use this as a springboard into Revelation chapter 16. We pick up the words in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 12, and we read these words. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying to them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. These heavens, he brothers the young people, is the political heaven of France. And it's Louis that's calling them and saying, Come up hither. He's in a crisis. He's assembling the estates general. There's a desperate attempt by Louis XVI to stay off civil unrest. Here we are, May the 5th, 1789, and he calls the Estates General together. It was something out of the box. This French assembled parliament had not met for 175 years. Now they met. This is way out of the box. This is something for the prophetic word to record. And Louis brings them, calls them up like a great cloud. And this estate's general was established in 302, being a French legislative body comprising of three groups or states of society. So they had the clergy, they had the nobility, and they had the communists. But they had a strange voting system. They voted by groups. So, I <laughs> mean, if you were a member of the clergy <laughs> and you had 500 members, you get one vote. If you're a member of the nobility and you had 5,000 members, one vote. If you're a member of the commoners and there were 500,000, it didn't matter, one vote. So when they got together, when they didn't, the clergy and nobility could get together, very small in number, and they could win the day. And the commoners made up 98% of the nation. And the two clergy and nobility coming together, making up 2%, and they swayed the day as far as their requirements and their vote was concerned. So Louis got them together and said, we're in trouble. The country's going down the drain. We need to get bread on the table. We need you to get together to try and solve Christ. Well, you know, brothers and sisters and young people, Louis' financial advice came to him and said, you better get your house in order. Louis said, I know. I know it's a desperate situation. What do I do? And the financial advice came to Louis and said, stop spending. Well, Louis went to his wife, Marie, what you do in times of crisis? And he went to his wife and said, my financial advisor told me to stop spending. What do I do? She said, sack him. They called Marie Antoinette Madame Deficit. She was not going to stop spending. And therefore, Louis said, get together, try and work it out. Well, they got together and they were working it out. Week went by, week went by, another week by, week went by. And Louis came to them and said, have you sorted out the problem? They said, no. They said, Louis said, what are you doing? We're trying to work out how to vote. They spent week after week after week sorting out how they were going to vote. They didn't trust those fellows over there, and those fellows didn't trust those fellows over there. And then we said, what are you doing? We're trying to figure out how to vote. Get on with it, he said. We've got to work out this crisis. And as the weeks went by, as the weeks went by, in the end, 
The commoners were listening, they were engaged in discussion. The commoners said, hey, we're 98%. We can go alone. We don't need the clergy. We don't need the nobility. We can go alone. And the commoners became emboldened as week went by, as week went by. And therefore, the commoners, or the third estate, voted in June the 17th to make themselves a permanent national assembly with or without the other two. Louis' efforts to repress the new assembly caused widespread rioting and uttered in the French Revolution. Well, brothers and sisters and young people, they stood upon their feet. There was a great shake. This was the second great earthquake in the apocalypse, the French Revolution. There was the new National Assembly, the third estate, the commoners, and they issued a decree proclaiming liberty of opinions, religious and political. They'd been dead for three and a half days, 105 years, and now they're back and they're proclaiming religious and political liberty. Have a look at this verse. Verse 13. This is the springboard now into Revelation 16. Revelation 13, the same hour, the same hour, that's 30 years. Once this revolution got moving, this great political and social upheaval earthquake, there would be a 30-year period of aftershock. That was Napoleon. That was the 30-year career of Napoleon as he was going to unwittingly pour out vial after vial after vial on Catholic Europe. One hour. So here we are. In the same hour, it was the great earthquake and the tenth part of the city fell, France. And in the earthquake, it was slain of men, 7,000, and the remnant were affrighted. Now, there weren't 7,000 people slain in the French Revolution. What does your margin say for those who may not be so familiar? What's the margin say? Well, we look at 7,000 men were slain. Names of men. So here we've got 7,000 names. Seven complete, complete titles were obliterated. You wouldn't call yourself a marquis. You weren't allowed to call yourself a duke. You had to be addressed as citizen. Louis XVI could not be addressed as sire or your majesty. Louis had to be addressed as citizen Louis. They abolished titles. Ah, but, brothers and sisters, God doesn't waste words. Not only were seven complete titles obliterated in the French Revolution, the word, the word that we read is 7,000. Why is that? Well, if you were to go back to Judges 6, Gideon said, my family is the least, the least of all families in Judges 6. And when you look at your margin, I am the least of all thousands. So thousand and family are used synonymously. So what the Bible is telling us here is not just titles were obliterated, family titles, hereditary titles, and that's how they were set up in France. You got a title because of your birth. So God does not waste words. He said, we're talking about 
the abolishment, complete family titles obliterated in the French Revolution. What an amazing thing, Francis. And therefore, we have, if you were an aristocrat, and if you did have a title, you're gone. Even if you were suspected of being an aristocrat with a title, you were gone. A breath of opposition to the course of events in the French Revolution. If you challenge the revolution, you will be headed. They were standing on their feet. We can't enter in, brothers and sisters, young people now, to the reign of terror for four years on. We're now in 1793 through 1794. The scene now is set for the opening of Revelation at chapter 16. So, brothers and sisters and young people, as we said last evening, the connecting point when we are in Revelation 11 and verse 14, we read, the second woe is past. There is the second woe. Remember? Woe trumpet one, woe trumpet two, woe trumpet three. The second woe is past. And behold, the third woe comes quickly. That is why we go from Revelation 11, now, from the revolution in France, we bounce, we spring, we are propelled into Revelation 16, which would be the third one of these seven bars. We're in Revelation 16 and verse 1 through 11, these first five bars. And so, brothers and sisters and young people, now we enter into the 16th chapter, and these first five bars of Revelation 16 were all about God's judgment. On Catholic Europe. They were all about bringing an end to an empire that had existed for over a thousand years. God is going to raise a man of destiny, that man, to bring an end to the Holy Roman Empire that had existed for 1,000 years. And God's going to raise up this man of destiny and he's going to give them the love to drink. Well, you read about it, don't you, in verse. Uh, in verse 6 of Revelation and chapter 16. So verse 6, For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. A man of Napoleon emerged from the French Revolution. In fact, Napoleon was 20 years of age when the revolution broke out. So as a teenager, he could see this train out of control coming down the track. And as a man, he used the French Revolution to propel him to start it. He was a man of destiny. And historians tell us that Napoleon was the greatest commander, the greatest military tactician since Alexander the Great. He was a man of destiny. But he had a few problems. As great as he was, he had a few problems. One of his problems was Napoleon was born there in Corsica. Why was that a problem? Well, a few years before Napoleon was born, the French came and they conquered Corsica. And therefore, Napoleon grew up absolutely hating the French. Do you believe that? 
absolutely hating the French. And not only so, Napoleon could hardly speak the French language. He had a thick Corsican accent. And there further to add to Napoleon's problems, Napoleon was only five foot six. It's about <laughs> so, brothers and sisters, here's a man who hates the French, can hardly speak the French language, five foot six, and ten years after the revolution broke out in 1799, this five foot six, hate the French, can hardly speak the language, walks in in 1799 in the coup d'etat and says, I am your first and chief consul. I am your leader. No way, brothers and sisters, and young people, would that have happened in the normal scheme of things. But God was in control. And the angels were at work. And therefore, brothers and sisters, Napoleon, the heir to the revolution, reorganised France and pretty much conquered all of Europe. And therefore, we now spring in to Revelation and Chapter 16. Now, what we want to do, brothers and sisters, is we want to do what we did in Revelation 11. Before we have a look at some of the detail of Revelation 16, we want to have a look at a scaffold, a broad brushed picture of this 16th chapter, and then we'll go back, particularly these first 11 verses, which we're going to be looking at, which are the first five lives. Then we'll go back and we'll look at some of the detail to give some richness to the drama of this chapter. Now, like Revelation 11, this chapter culminates in a great earthquake. This is the third great earthquake. We have there in verse 18. Now, someone has put Armageddon next to this third great earthquake. That's not correct. Armageddon is the last event of the sixth bio. Armageddon, there will be a literal earthquake at Armageddon. Armageddon is the last event of the sixth volume. We are here with this third great earthquake. We are in the seventh volume. Verse 17, the seventh angel pointed his volume into the area, the political arena of Babylon the Great. Therefore, this third great is not Armageddon. It is that 40 year period between Armageddon and the beginning of the millennium. It is a political and social upheaval of the kingdom of men. So your three great earthquakes in the apocalypse, the removal of paganism in chapter 6, the removal of the, of the Catholic hierarchy and the French aristocracy in Revelation 11, and here the removal of the kingdom of men, giving way to the kingdom of God. Not Armageddon, but that all is shaking politically and socially throughout this world. Having said that, let's have a look at a, a brief overview of Revelation 16 and then go and drill down to some of the detail. What we've got here, brothers and sisters, young people, we're going to first five. There in verse two. So the first five was poured out upon the earth. Talk about the earth in a moment, what the earth was. And there was a, a grievous sore, a noisome and grievous sore, fell upon the men in chapter. Least the most of which is in it. That's our first bowl or our first five. We come into verse three and we read that the second bowl was poured out upon 
the sea. And it became as the blood of a dead man. Now, the blood of a dead man, well, the blood of a dead man is congealed. It, it doesn't flow. Now, I want you to note something here. There's an interesting comparison or connection between verse 3 and verse 8. No, and verse 4. So there's an interesting connection between verse 3 and verse 4. Because in verse 3, the sea becomes as the blood of a dead man. It congeals. It dries up. There's no flow of blood. So what God does here, he says, stop the flow of blood, whatever that means. Stop the flow of blood in the second Bible in order that there might be a copious flow of blood in the third Bible. Have a look at this. The third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters, and they became blood. Vial two, stop the flow of blood. Vial three, let blood flow with alacrity, with celerity. Let it be copious. Let it be like the fountains and rivers of waters. Let it be not water anymore, but let it be blood. It's a very interesting. I will show you in a moment how the second vial overarches vial three, vial four, and vial five to make sure vial three, four, and five take place. Stop the flow of blood in order that blood might flow with alacrity. In the third vial. Amazed, wait and see how that works. If we come to our fourth vial in verse 8, and the fourth angel pointed out his pole upon the sun, the powers given to him, whoever he was, to scorch men with fire. Amazed the way that is fulfilled, as we shall see. And then our fifth vial in verse 10, the fifth angel pointed out his pole upon the Throne as it should be of beasts, and his kingdom was full of darkness. And that's our brief for this morning. God willing, our study tomorrow afternoon will take us into the sixth file of verse 12, and then our studies, God willing, on Wednesday evening will take us into the seventh file in verse 17. And what I'm going to do is just one more little overview, but with an introduction to this overview. And then we'll come in and look at some of the detail. A little bit more overview, a little bit more detail. Brothers and sisters, I want to begin this little section, a couple of minutes section, with the words of Revelation 15 and verse 1. And these are God's alarm bells that ought to ring in our ears. This is really how the 16th chapter was introduced, in order that we might get our house in order, in order that we might get our ecclesias in order in order that we might get our hearts right before God. God gives us a warning. Verse 1, Revelation 15. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvellous, seven angels having the seven last smites. There are no more after this, God says. These are the last. You've seen me judge pagan Rome. Through the seals. You've seen me bring judgment on the Latin West in the Christian world with the poor Germanic barbarians. You've seen me through the agency of the Saracens bring judgment on the Hellenic East. You've seen me with the Turks bring judgment upon the, the, the Hellenic East and the Hellenized East through the, through the Saracens and the Hellenic East through the Turks. 
You've seen me bring judgment upon France. You've seen all of those things. God says, well, these are the last. There are no more afterwards. So take that in, in our minds, brothers and sisters, and let those alarm bells ring in our ears. And with that, the first fire was poured out on the earth. Now, I've got there the French Revolution of 1789. You'll read many writings that say 1792. Don't have a problem with that. 1792 is when France became a republic. And when France became a republic, that stirred up the ire of Europe. And that provoked Europe to move against France, which then provoked France to move against Europe, 1792. And this malignant ulcer we read of in Bio 1 sprung out of France and then permeated throughout all of Europe. I have no problem if you have a little note in your margin saying the first Bible begins with 1792, France becoming no problem with that all. But it began with the French Revolution. This malignant ulcer spilled throughout Europe began locally first within France. That's why I prefer to have the might as well 1789. Then the second bottle was poured out, and we see it was poured out on the sea. It's the Brits. Out come the Brits, rule the tank. Brit rules the waves in 1793. So all France was undergoing awful bloodshed, awful terror in the reign of terror. And Louis XVI in 1793 had his head removed. Marie Antoinette in 1793 had a head guillotine. While all of that was going on in France, out come the Brits, Royal Britannia, the second Bible. Then we come to the third Bible in 1796, and this would be Napoleon's Alpine campaigns. This is where Napoleon came into his own. He's 27 and he's a major general. So 27-year-old Major General is off to kick the Austrians out of northern Italy and southern Switzerland on this third fire. Major General, 27-year-old Napoleon, and off he goes. Then the fourth fire was poured out in 1805. Now, this would be Napoleon's European war. He's going to Vienna. He's going to take out the sun. But he's not 27-year-old Major General. He is now Emperor Napoleon and has been for one year. So off goes Emperor Napoleon to take out the sun, Vienna. And then we have 1808, the papacy would not escape. And Napoleon would deal with the Pope and Italy. And then we have, finish off that little chart, 1820. And we have the Ottoman Empire's oh, brothers and sisters, young, so what? Who cares about a bunch of French history that happened over 200 years ago? Who cares? God does. The angels do. So do we. Because very soon, these stepping stones that the angels have been outworking for us very soon. We, because we are interested in what the angels have been doing, very soon we are going to complete that work 
with the seventh vial in the words of Revelation 18 and verse 21, thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. That is why we are interested. I don't mean you have to have a, 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 a detailed knowledge of history, but we are interested in what the Bible says about me that God has raised up to fulfill his purpose. And therefore, brothers and sisters, this man, this man that God raised up, this man of destiny, there he is at his coronation in 1804, wearing Caesar's crown. He wanted to be Caesar. He wanted to be constant. He wanted to be Alexander the Great and greater. Napoleon wanted to be anything that was greater than the greatest. There he is. And he was an unwitting instrument in the judgment on the Holy Roman Empire and on the Catholic Church. Do you know, Napoleon saw himself as an instrument of providence. This is what he said about himself. I am the instrument of providence. She, no Napoleon, you got it wrong. He, it's God, not she, he. Napoleon said, she will use me as long as I accomplish her desires, and then she will break me as a glass. And God did. God used Napoleon for this, for this, for this, for this, and then in Waterloo in 1815, God broke him as a glass. His work was finished. End of those first five lives. And therefore, Napoleon, in his campaign, brought untold suffering to Italy, Austria, and Russia. And it would be fitting vengeance for the blood of God's servants and the anti-papal witnesses of Revelation of Leper, who had been persecuted mercilessly in previous centuries. And so, brothers and sisters, we pick up the first Bible and we quickly move through it, taking the eyes out of each of these Bibles. Just check my watch so that you don't have the surreptitious Look at it. Yes, I'm aware of the time. Just kind of like almost 20 to 12 or about quarter to 12 I should go. All right. The first poll is brought out upon the earth. Now, this earth is the Roman earth. Now, we've already been to Revelation 11 and verse 4, where the witness stood against the God of the earth, the papacy. So, this first poll. Judgment is going to be poured out upon the Roman, upon the Holy Roman Empire, the earth. Now, when we look at the Holy Roman Empire, there was when it began in 18, sorry, in 818, with the introduction of Charlemagne, Charles the Magnificent, Carl, they call him, K A R L. Interesting, brothers and sisters, that a Frank. Charlemagne, Frenchman, a Frank brought the Holy Roman Empire in. And a Frenchman, albeit born in Corsica, but he certainly waved the French flag when he was emperor, a Frenchman would take it out. Charlemagne brings it in, Napoleon takes it out. The French bring it in, the French take it out. The Holy Roman Empire. Now that's how the Holy Roman Empire looked at the beginning in 818. A few hundred years to this, and you see that the Holy Roman Empire, the Earth, contracts eastward 
Add another couple of hundred years to the Holy Roman Empire, and you can see there is the Lion of Man in 1530. This was pretty much the lie of the land in these vials in Revelation 16. Now you can see France is ruling within her own rights. France was loosely connected to the Holy Roman Empire via a series of marriages, like Louis XVI married Marie Antoinette, and Marie Antoinette was the daughter of the emperor in Austria, the Holy Roman Empire. So France was loosely connected by marriages to the Holy Roman Empire, but reigning in their own right. So when we talk about the earth, we're talking about the earth beast of Revelation 13. The first file was poured out on the earth, the Holy Roman Empire. And then we read Russell's young people, there was a noisome and grievous sword. Well, in the Greek, it literally is, it was an evil, for noisome, it was an evil, malignant ulcer. Now, the RSV translates it this way. There was a foul and painful storm that came upon all those who had the mark of the beast. And we're going to have a look at this malignant ulcer. Now, there is the Holy Roman Empire as it was in 1795. So there's the Holy Roman Empire there. And the malignant ulcer would spring out of France. 1792, when France became a republic, and it would permeate throughout all of the earth, the Holy Roman Empire. And the reason, brothers and sisters, is because of their cooperation, France's cooperation with the papacy in the persecution of the witnesses in Revelation 11. It began locally, this awful malignant ulcer began locally, this revolution, this spirit of bloodshed and revolution as the ulcer, and that spirit would then spread right throughout all of your brothers and sisters and young. God had put a great big rope around this area, like a big fence, and said to Napoleon, I know Napoleon didn't hear it in so many words, and God said to Napoleon, you belong there. Stay in your paddock. That's the arena within which you have work to do for me. Tell that to Napoleon. Nah, I'm going to Egypt. And he went down to Egypt. It was a disaster. Oh, he had a few, few uh, successes in Palestine, a few little successes with the Mamelukes. It was a disaster. He went down into Egypt and finally brought some successes young people. He had to leave 30,000 of his men stranded because he had no boats left. And he had to dress up in disguise and did his way back on his own, leaving 30,000 men in Egypt to get back to France, get back to Paris. You do not belong in Egypt. He was defeated. Thought about taking England. No way. There's no way you could cross the channel with the Brits ruling the oceans, ruling Britannia. No. He thought twice about taking England and he was defeated even in his mind. No way. All right, I'll go to Russia. Which he did. And he went to Russia with 600,000 of the Grand Army. 600,000. And five 
100,000 of them perished in the snow because of the weather. God was working. You do not belong in Russia. You do not belong in England. You do not belong in Egypt. You belong there in the earth, the holy Roman earth. And therefore, brothers and sisters and young people, every time Napoleon fought a battle in that paddock that God had intended him to work, he was always victorious. Until Waterloo. But then God had finished with him and broke him as a glass. What an amazing. Well, here comes the second one. Here comes the rule protector. Now, here's why. Here's why God introduced this second vial to congeal the flow of blood in order that Napoleon might fulfill vials three, four, and five, and that the work might be complete as God determined should. The second angel brought in his bowl on the sea. This would be the blockade of Europe by the maritime forces of Britain. Stop the flow of trade. There would be no sea traffic allowed on the, shop, on the oceans while Britain was there. Britain would dominate the ocean, and therefore this sea are the Mediterranean seas at the Mediterranean and the seas that were surrounding Europe. So God put a great big rope around Europe to keep Napoleon in the path within which God had intended him to work. And God was going to pit the maritime genius of Horatio Nelson with the genius of the land. Fighter, Napoleon. They're going to be pitted one against the other. But Napoleon Brunson's system saw the need to get rid of the Brits. He saw the need to get rid of the British Navy. They were restricting him. He wanted to go out, out, because there's no standing in that paddock. So therefore, Napoleon said, We've got to put all our strength on the sea. Got to destroy England. And the continent will be at our feet. And what we're going to do, brothers and sisters, we'll just tell you one little story for a minute or two about how this overlapping, overarching second line was put there by God. The rope around Europe by England and their maritime forces to make sure the Poly did not stray out of its which I had not worked. In 1805, Trafalgar, the Battle of Trafalgar, Britain completely dominated the seas and did so for the next 50 years. Let's look at this timeline and see how this overarching second vial compelled by three, four, and five to be complete. We've got the first vial on the earth, 1789 through 1793. Then we've got our second vial on the sea, so through 1793 to 1805. We make the point here that Britain will dominate for the next 50 years after Trafalgar, after 1805. So let's push the Brits' influence on the seas out another 50 years. Now, here's the third part. In the panic that God intended the following to work, overarched by the Brits, making sure he did that job. Here's your fourth part. Overarched by the Brits, make sure he stayed in his panic. Here's your fifth part. Overarched by the Brits to make sure he stayed in his paddock. See? Therefore, brothers and sisters, I just want to show you how it really did work. How the Brits compelled Napoleon to wake up and get out of where he was, where he should not have been. 
and get back into his pack. And this is the story of Rick's overarching this third Bible. What happened was there was this battle called the Battle of the Nile, and it took place at Abu Kia in Egypt. Now, there's the Bay of Abu Kia there. Napoleon's going to Egypt. Why? Because Alexander went there. Where are you going next? I'm going to Palestine. Why? Because I'm going to use that as a springboard into India. Why? Because Alexander went there. And after I've been in Palestine, I'm going to go up to Constantinople. Why? Because I'm going to use that as a springboard. I'm going to go into India and I'm going to cut off the trade to the Brits. I'm going to destroy Britain, not by conquering her across the channel. I'm going to destroy Britain by cutting off her trade, her lifeline to India. So he's going down to Egypt. He's going to kick out the Mamelukes who ruled in Egypt. He's then going to go up to Palestine. He's going to go up to Constantinople. And then he's going to go to India to be greater and greater than Alexander. So off he goes. 47,000 men he's got. He comes down to Alexandria, leaves his ships there parked in Abukir. He gets to Alexandria, 47,000 men. He's going to march down to Cairo. Do you know what? They never, ever anticipated the heat. And as these 40,000 men march down the highway, literally hundreds and hundreds of his soldiers put guns to their head and committed suicide because of the heat and lack of water. And he got down the Cairo, brothers and sisters. And when he was down there, yes, he went up to Palestine. He had a few wars in Palestine. And do you know what? While he was in Palestine, you know what Napoleon said? He said, you know what? I think it's time now for me to take steps to allow Israel to come back to the Holy Land. And when Britain heard that, they were horrified. They could not bear the idea of the French being in Palestine. And that moved the British very, very quickly. They were going to be the ones to force us the entrance of Israel into Palestine. Napoleon said, yes, I think we should bring the Jewish people back into the land of Palestine. What an amazing thing. But while he's down in Cairo, he's now got 30,000 men left. While he's there, along comes Nelson. Nelson and, and Napoleon's fleets, they were streaming all over the Mediterranean. In fact, they passed each other in the night. They didn't know. They didn't have radar. They didn't have smartphones. They didn't know. So there was Nelson going around. He knew Napoleon was on the move somewhere. And Nelson's going around the Mediterranean and Napoleon gets into Alexandria. Well, while Napoleon was down in Cairo, Nelson comes to the bay of Abukir and he sees all of these ships. Blew the lot of them. And here's Napoleon stranded down there in Egypt with 30,000 men. As we said a moment ago, he's got to leave there and he's got to put his skies on and get back to Europe. While he was down there in Egypt, a coalition of European states against France was taking place. That's how the Brits, the, the second vial, overarched, causing Napoleon to say, shouldn't be here. I should be back there. God says, shouldn't be Should be back in the back. All right, here's the third bottle. And the third angel pointed out his bottle on the rivers and mountains and waters, and they became one. Here would be, brothers and sisters, 27-year-old Major General Polk, not picking out the offsprings from Northern Italy, Southern Switzerland. Now, Napoleon is going to come down from Paris 
He's going to pick up a few guys down there in Tawai. He's going to move into this area of Piedmont. Now, we looked at this verse when we started that study. They were given blood to drink because they were worthy. And that verse says is particularly and peculiarly relevant to the third life. Because in this area of Piedmont, the Catholics were responsible for absolute carnage of the Albigenses and the Waldenses. Men and women who wanted to read their Bible and serve God as best they could, and the Catholics couldn't stand the Waldenses, couldn't stand the Albigenses, and persecuted them mostly. And here, in this area of fountains and rivers and waters, blood flowed because of the Catholics persecuting the Albigenses and the Waldenses. God said, God did not forget. God said, I have a task for this man to bring vengeance on those people because of what they did to those two classes of people. So Napoleon's on, the brothers and sisters, the young people, before we go with him on a couple of minute journey into this third Bible, I just want to spend a minute or two just to show you what this man was about, to show you kind of like the flavour of Napoleon, so you understand what happened when he went to kick out the Austrians. And it goes like this. Napoleon, just to get the feel of it, Napoleon was born in 1769. He died in 1829. He was 52. When he was nine years old, he entered the French military school. And when he was there at the French military school as a nine-year-old, the other kids teased him. They kicked him around because he spoke funny. He had this thick, coarse skin accent. And because these other kids tormented him, it caused Napoleon to withdraw and become antisocial. And he withdrew into his books, particularly mathematics. In fact, there was one instructor there who said, you are a very studious young man. You would make a very good naval officer in the British Navy. No way. No way. Of course, we've got the British Navy. You're going to fight the British Navy. So here he is, he's a nine-year-old, and he's, he's, he's becoming antisocial, and he's withdrawing into his books, particularly mathematics. Mind you, the times he was social, he dominated. Surprise, surprise. Well, he was Napoleon Brothers and Sisters and Young People. He's now 16 years of age, and he's commissioned the second lieutenant in 1785. And then when he's 23, at the time when France became a republic in 1792, he's promoted to captain. Now, where's the French Revolution? The French Revolution is there. Napoleon was 20 when that revolution broke out. In Revelation 11. Now here he's 23 and he's a captain. Well, when he's 24 in 1793, he's made Brigadier General. 1793, that's the time when there was the reign of terror going on in France. And here we are, four years after the revolution broke out, and people in France are sick to death of the revolution. They're sick to death of the Inquisition. They're sick to death of the guillotine. They're sick to death of the blood. They're sick to death of everything. The revolution was supposed to be their salvation. All it's bringing is grief. And therefore in Paris in 1793, when Napoleon's 24, in Paris there's this groundswell and there's 25,000 people in Paris walking through the streets chanting, we want the king back. We want the monarchy. We want the Bourbons. We want Louis. We don't want the French Revolution. It's a mob. It's a crazed mob. 
And the government are going, it's a mob. How do we deal with a mob? I know. We'll get Napoleon. He might only be five foot six, but he knows how to deal with a crazed mob. And so Napoleon comes on the scene, brothers and sisters, and he says to his mate, get a cannon. His mate says, what are you going to do, Scotch? So this mob are charging through the streets of Paris, 25. We want to do that. And, and then Napoleon says, mate, put it in the street. What are you going to do? Watch. And they come around the corner, he says, let it off. Boom, the cannon, the cannon goes off. And through his own people, he kills 200 people in one cannon shot. Brothers and sisters, they got problems on the border with the Prussians. They got problems on their border with the Russians. They got problems on the border with the Austrians. And here is Napoleon blowing his own people up with cannons in his own streets. Well, if you do that in Paris, they promote you. So what happened, brothers and sisters? He was promoted to major general. So here he is. He's 26-year-old. He's major general. Nearly ready to go on to the third vile campaign. Nearly ready to go up to the area of the Alpine regions to kick out the Well, it wasn't a war for Napoleon. It was love in the end. And Napoleon came across this very old woman, 37 years old. And her name was Josephine. And at 27 year old, she's 37. She's a widow. She's got two children. Falls in love with Josephine. Marries Joseph. Spends a night or two with his new bride and says, darling, that's all. I've got to go. I have a war to fight. So off he goes to the third Bible in Revelation 6. He's off as 27-year-old Major General on his campaigns in Austria, in, uh, in Northern Israel. Now, just to finish off a little chart, 10 years after the revolution breaks out, the Poland's third and in the coup d'etat, seized power as now, what you need to understand is this. In between here, him leaving Josephine and going off to the Alpine Empire, and him seizing power in 1799, in between there and there is when he went down to Egypt. Right? He comes back from his Alpine campaign, goes down to Egypt, then comes back and seizes power, having left his 30,000 men down in Egypt. That's how it works. All right, brothers and sisters. His third, his, uh, the uh, third bowl poured out upon fountains and rivers and waters. And what the problem is going to do is going to deal with this area here. He's going to come down to Toulon, down there. They come from Paris, down to Toulon. And he comes down to Toulon, he's going to pick up the Italian army. He gets down to Toulon, brothers and sisters and young people, and he comes to these blokes down there and he says, Who are you? They said, We're, we're the Italian army. He said, Where's your horse? They said, we ain't. He said, where's your guns? They said, we left him in the field of battle. What, brothers and sisters, you've never seen a, a ragtag, form, decrepit bunch of blokes going up. They've eaten their horses. They don't know where their guns are. And he's got to take them up there to kick the Austrians out. I'd be going back to Joseph. I'd be saying, no, no way am I staying with you. Three months he had to rip them into gear. Three months. And by the charisma of his presence, by the electricity of his presence, he ripped them and whipped them into gear in three months. And went up there, brothers and sisters, to unwittingly fulfill the third bowl. And there was a battle there. And then there was a battle there. And there were battles all over this area of fountains and rivers and waters as he fulfills the words of God in that quotation, brothers and sisters. Third angel brought out his bowl upon the rivers and fountains and waters, and they became blood. All right, let's deal with blood. So he gives the Pope blood to drink. 
by coming down, defeating Pope's forces at Pienza and Cana, Napoleon advanced on Rome, and the Pope sued. Well, he's coming back to Paris. He's finished his job in the third mile. He's coming back to Paris. And when he comes back to Paris, <coughs> the people absolutely love him. His men would do anything for him. He is the man of the moment. Everyone loves this man, Napoleon. The government in France don't love him. The government in France is shaky, corrupt and unstable. They don't want Napoleon because he's too good. Napoleon has been over there in the third Bible. Napoleon has been over there negotiating with the Pope. Napoleon has been over there negotiating with the King of Naples. Napoleon has been over there coding law. Napoleon has been over there carving up land. He's more than a military commander. He's a, no, he's not a politician. He's a government on the move. And the government in Paris don't want him. They want him out fighting battles because it's good for the economy. And so therefore they say, what are you going to do? Go to England, they say. Napoleon says, nah, I've got a better idea. I don't have to defeat England on the Channel or over there on their island. The best way to defeat England is to go down to Egypt, Palestine, Constantinople, India, cut off England's life. So there he goes, brothers and sisters. He goes down to Egypt. After he's come back from his outline campaign, and while he's down in Egypt, in Napoleon's absence, the Austrians, with the help of Russia, retook Italy, and all that Napoleon did after he said goodbye to Josephine was all undone. It all unraveled. And therefore, he had to leave his 30,000 men, he said, and go back. And therefore, here he comes. He forsakes his army, returns to Paris, where by the turn of events, he becomes the first consul after the coup d'etat of 1799. How's everybody going? Let's have a look. Yes, we should be finished in a minute or two. Mind you, you've got all done. And what time is lunch? I can name a couple of speakers that would take that offer up. This is not right. All right, brothers and sisters. Now, just a couple of minutes. I want to show you something. I just want to do one more time. I'm going to do a lot. I could just say a sentence, but I just want to show you this is amazing. This really is amazing. This is Napoleon. And this is the beginning of his end. So here we've got Napoleon. He's about to crown himself at Notre Dame. This would be the beginning of the end of Napoleon. And there he is in Notre Dame. He knew that there was a man a thousand years ago who crowned himself in Rome under the auspices of the Pope. Napoleon said, no, even though Charlemagne crowned himself thousand years ago, I'm not going to Rome, the Pope is coming to me. And so Napoleon says to the Pope, you come to Notre Dame and you sit and you watch this crowning phrase. But this was the beginning of the end of this man. Because there's the tapestry. <clears throat> I mean that I think most of us have seen big tapestry. Now Christian and I <clears throat> had the privilege of being able to go to Notre Dame Chris and I <clears throat> stood there and we looked up 
And I'll say to Christine, I'll say, <clears throat> Napoleon's mother should have been sitting here, but she wasn't at the coronation. Napoleon's mum said, no, I'm not coming to the coronation. I don't like Josephine. I don't like the fact that she's going to be the next empress. No way am I coming. So when the painter began to paint this tapestry, the painter said, I'm painting this. Your mother wasn't there. What do I do? Napoleon said, paint her in. And the painter said, well, what will she say? Napoleon said, she will thank me later. Paint her in. He did what he liked. You see the Pope there, brothers and sisters? He's got a little hand out there, like, looks like he's making the sign of the cross. No, he wasn't doing that. He, Napoleon said, you sit there, put your hands on your knees, don't move. You just walk, do nothing. When the painter started painting his painting, he said, oh, I did invite him over. I suppose you better get him to do something. Put his hand up there, maybe he's doing the sign of the cross. He did what he liked. Brothers and sisters, he might only have been five or six, but he had the ego of an eight-foot giant. And this was going to be the undermining of Napoleon. This was going to be the beginning of the end. Therefore, then launch you. This is the one I want to share a couple of minutes with you and then we'll wrap up this study. I love it. It's amazing how God has penned these words and we read through the historical eyes of these writings. The fourth angel who had his bowl upon the sun is off to Vienna. He's off to bring an end to the empire that had existed for a thousand years, the Holy Roman Empire. Now, the sun, in scripture, we know the sun represents political power. In Psalm 89 and verse 36, we read of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sun, S-U-N, who would take upon himself in the age to come political power. We know in Revelation 8 and verse 12 that the sun would be eclipsed, would be the eclipsing of the Roman world. We know Revelation 12 and verse 1, the woman would be clothed with the sun. So this is political power. Therefore, brothers and sisters and young people, the sun of Europe had been the Holy Roman Empire since 800 AD. And Napoleon is going to take out the sun. He's going to take out the Holy Roman Empire. Now look at this. I want you to focus. Just be with me for a minute or two. Think about this. Charlemagne brought the Holy Roman Empire in that Napoleon's going to take out. Charlemagne, Napoleon, and the sun. You've got Charlemagne, Napoleon, and the sun. What's all that got to do all wrapped up together? Particularly when we think about the way in which the sun is portrayed in Revelation 12, where Rome would be clothed, the Roman Catholic Church would be clothed with the sun. So what's Revelation 12 clothing with the sun got to do with Charlemagne got to do with the poly all wrapped up together? Have a look at this. If you go to the birthplace of Charlemagne born in the Holy Roman Empire, the sun, you'll find that Charlemagne in Arkham, born in Arkham, built that temple. Did Charlemagne. Now there is Arkham there in Germany. The birthplace of Birthplace of the one star of the Holy Roman Empire that Napoleon's going to take out. There's his birthplace, Martin. There's the cathedral that he built. So what? Let's go inside. As we go inside that cathedral, notwithstanding the amazing stained glass, look at that. That is a woman clothed with the sun. Who put that there? Charlemagne. Who brought in the Holy Roman Empire? Who is the sun? 
which the potent's going to take out in the fourth bowl upon the sun. And there, he got that to Charlemagne out of Revelation 20. And under that sun, in the cathedral of the birthplace of the one that brought in the sun, no less than 32 emperors of the sun were crowned. You got that flow over here and do some research. That is absolutely amazing. And therefore, from 1438 through 1806, the rulers of the sun, the Holy Empire, came almost invariably from Austria, where Napoleon's head. Ruling Austria was regarded as the ruler of the Holy Roman Empire. So he's going up to take out the sun. And the Bible calls him, brothers and sisters, and we can jump, the Bible calls him. All major point if the whole and power was given to him the whole to scorch men with fire. You know, when Napoleon was down in Egypt and he fought with the Mananites, there were rules in Egypt at that time. They fought at what they called the Battle of the Pyramids, two hours. They called it the Battle of the Pyramids. But actually, the battle was fought in a vegetable patch. Carrots, celeries, lettuces. But could you imagine reading this book saying, Napoleon was infamous. He defeated the Mamluks in the Battle of the Vegetables. Not very romantic. But there were pyramids in the distance. So the historians said, no, that's better. We'll call it the two-hour battle, battle of the pyramids. And so there was Napoleon, and he was down there fighting the Mamluks, and he defeated the Mamluks in the two-hour battle of the pyramids, which was fought in the vegetable patch. Now, look, the historian, you know how we talk about Belloc in the French Revolution, he said, he said, he said, the Huguenots remain as a, as, a, as a powerful and ever watchful body. Remember that we did that last time? Have a look at this historian writing this. But the angels moving her pen, Henrietta March writes about the Battle of the Pyramids. Many of the Mammoths threw themselves into the Nile and panic. Many were cut down by the Sui French. Those who escaped the Mammoths carried to all parts of Egypt the fame and terror of Sultan Kabir. The king of fire. And the English tabloids, when they were writing about Napoleon joining across Europe, they called him a man of fire because he put cannons and he arrayed the cannons in such a way that when he landed off, it was like fire surrounding Napoleon. What an amazing. And God says he's coming to take out the sun. And he would be scorching men with fire. What an amazing thing. Well, brothers and sisters, in the fifth bowl, Napoleon would take out the planks. Well, God's now going to break him as it was. After he took out the papacy and darkened that kingdom, he had six years left. Three years, he's off to Russia. Bad move. Three years later, he's defeated at Waterloo on June the 18th, 1815. And he's exiled to the remote Atlantic island of Salina. Napoleon died in 1821, and he's 52. John Thomas is 16 when Napoleon died. No wonder. As a teenage boy, John Thomas is reading the English tabloids of the jaunts of Napoleon, Revelation 16. No wonder when Brother Thomas was converted. No wonder when he became a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. No wonder when he wrote books like Eureka. His pen was on fire. And he wrote about a man on fire and Brother Thomas. God raised up Napoleon, yes. God raised up brethren like Brother Thomas that he might inspire us 
with his faithful study of the word of God and his faithful life lived in the service of Jesus Christ and of his brethren. Well, brothers and sisters and young people, as we conclude, if the French Revolution had not happened, as awful as it was in Revelation 11, if the wars in Europe did not take place as horrendous as they were, as recorded in Revelation 16, if the church and state had not been separated, you and I would not be here this afternoon. We would not be allowed to open our Bibles and read with the knowledge that we have. What an amazing thing. God and the angels were at work, brothers and sisters. And God willing, in our study tomorrow afternoon, we're going to move from the from the arena of history that has been for us, prophecy to those before. We're going to move from the arena of history and we're going to move into the sixth Bible and see our role, brothers and sisters, in the present day and in the future to come. God willing, we pick up that study under the sea, away from the Thank you. Welcome to the third study, as we have there on the screen, Away Prepared. Now, considering the generation that we belong to, brothers and sisters and young people and the people that we are, I don't think there could be a more relevant chapter of the Bible, particularly those few verses that we read this afternoon than this section here. This is our vial. This is the vial within which the truth has been restored or revived. This vial is the vial that begins the last judgments of Almighty God. This vial is the vial within which our destinies will be determined. And you would have noticed the last word used in this vial is the word Armageddon. And by the time Armageddon is a reality in this world, every one of us here gathered will know one way or the other whether we have kept our garments or whether we have given our hearts, truly our hearts, to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we want to talk about this afternoon. In these last days, giving our hearts to Christ. Now, over the last couple of studies, particularly our study yesterday, we saw the career of Napoleon in 30 years move swiftly through Europe covering these first five vials. They were over in a wink, in a blink, in a lifetime. And the first five vials were completed because in Revelation 11 and verse 14, Behold, the second woe is past, and the third woe cometh quickly. And it did, one after the other after the other, on the earth, on the sea, fountains and rivers of waters, on the sun, on the throne of the beast. It was all over in a wink, a blink, in a lifetime. You would have thought that when the sixth vial came, you would have thought that that would have been over very, very quickly. But not so, and we want to explore that this afternoon. Why is it 
that the sixth vial has gone on and on and on, seeming to break the mould of those first five vials that were over so quickly. Now, the work of Napoleon, raised up by God, a man of destiny, he did some remarkable things. Of course he did. God was using him. He said some amazing things. Of course he did. God was using him. The angels were pushing him there and pushing him there. Look at this. This is what Napoleon said. And we're going to talk about giving our hearts to Christ this afternoon in this context of the sixth vial. Look at what Napoleon said. Now, we finished our study yesterday morning with this slide. And we saw that Napoleon was defeated at Waterloo on June 18, 1815. And he was then exiled, as we saw, to the remote Atlantic island of St. Helena. And we noted that Napoleon died in 1821. He was 52. And John Thomas was 16. The man that God raised up and talking about hearts and talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Have a look at what Napoleon said regarding Christ. He said this. You speak of Caesar, of Alexander and of their conquests and of the enthusiasm which they enkindled in the hearts of their soldiers. But can you conceive of a dead man making conquests with an army faithful and entirely devoted to his memory? My armies have forgotten me even while living as the Carthaginian army forgot Hannibal. Such is our power, said Napoleon. Well then, I'll tell you. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne and myself have founded great empires, but upon what did these creations of our genius depend? Upon force. Jesus alone founded his empire upon love, and to this very day, millions will die for him. I think I understand something of human nature, and I tell you, all these were men, and I am a man. None else is like him. Jesus Christ was more than a man. And then he went on to say this. I have inspired multitudes with such an enthusiastic devotion that they would have died for me. But to do this, it was necessary that I should be visibly present with the electric influence of my looks and my words and my voice. When I saw men, I spoke to them. I lighted up a flame of self-devotion in their hearts. Christ alone has succeeded in so raising the mind of man toward the unseen that it becomes insensible to the barriers of time and space. And across a chasm of 1,800 years, Jesus Christ makes a demand which is beyond all others to satisfy. He asks for the human heart. That are amazing words. Amazing words by man raised up by God. And we're going to talk about, as we said, giving our hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as we said, five vials, 30 years over. No wonder Brother Thomas, no wonder Brother Thomas thought that Christ was there, thinking the sixth vial would follow the same pattern. But the sixth vial has gone on and on and on and has been going on for 202 years. Why? Why so long? We're weary of waiting. Why do we have to wait so long? Well, there are two reasons. One has to do with religion and politics. The other has to do with the brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's consider those two. Politics and religion is one reason this sixth vial has gone on and on in the economy of God. The other reason is for you and me, a very sobering 
exhortation and warning to us. Let's take the first bit first. Why so long? Religion and politics. Well, brothers and sisters, young people, in fulfilment of the words of Revelation 11, the altar, the holy city, and the altar, the altar, the holy city, and the temple would be trodden down for 1,260 years. In fulfilment of Revelation 13, the dragon would give the, the beast power and authority in his seat that he might open his mouth, his Babylonish mouth, and blaspheme against God and wear out the saints. In fulfilment of those two scriptures, Revelation 11 and 13, the Pope in 1870 was at his lowest ebb and he was going to lose his temporal power after 1,260 years of doing what he liked. And there's Giuseppe Garibaldi. And Giuseppe Garibaldi, along with Victor Emmanuel II, the king of Sardinia, they were going to march up, determined to march up this peninsula of Italy and weld all the provinces and all the duchies together and make it one kingdom, one kingdom of Italy they were determined to do, and one king would be king, not two. And so as Victor Emmanuel II marched up there, Giuseppe Garibaldi marched up there, they went straight into the papal state. There was the kingdom of God on earth, thought the Pope. There was the Pope's kingdom. He was the king. But when Victor Emmanuel II came in, he said to the Pope, there's one king of this new established united Italy, and it's me. You're out. The Pope said, no, no, we've been this before. Napoleon tried this. Didn't work. He had it for a little while, but I came back. It's not going to happen. God's given me this kingdom. I'm not going to be ejected. The Russians will help me. The Prussians will help me. The Austrians will help me. Maybe even the French will help me. No, Victor Emmanuel said, you're out. And therefore the Pope went inside the Vatican as a self-imposed prisoner, spat the dummy and said, I'm not coming out. I'm not coming out of the Vatican. I'm going to be a prisoner myself, putting myself there. I'm not coming out until my kingdom is given back to me. And I think it will be, he thought, because God was in charge over his life. No, brothers and sisters. So the Pope was at his lowest ebb. He'd lost his power. And therefore, therefore, it required time to allow the papacy to come back in its zenith of power with all the power that the sea beast of Revelation 13 had in the past. So in 1870, when the Pope is way, way down there, God says, there's going to need time. Years and years and years to go by, whereby the papacy has got to come back in its awful, powerful glory so that the Lord Jesus Christ and the saints can destroy that system. And therefore, you have two quotations out of Revelation 17 that are set side by side, and they show this demise of the papacy and this resurgence of the papacy. Two verses in Revelation 17. Now, here we are. Verse 16 of Revelation 17, here's the demise of the papacy in 1789 as it began. And the ten horns, Europe, which thou sawest upon the beast, these will hate the whore, and they did. And these shall make her desolate, and they did. And they'll make her naked, and they shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire, and they did. As Napoleon went charging across Europe, they hated the whore, they burnt her flesh, they burnt, ate her flesh, they burnt her with fire. And therefore, brothers and sisters, the next verse shows us the coming back. Time was needed to rebuild that power for the time of the end. And in the very next verse, verse 17, we read these words. 
For God hath put in their hearts Europe, in the hearts of Europe, to fulfill God's will. And for Europe to agree and for Europe to begin to give their kingdom back to the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. When? When, after the demise and the lowest ebb of the papacy in 1870, I'm not coming out, I'm going to remain a self-imposed prisoner, not coming out until you give me my kingdom back. Pope after Pope, locked in that Vatican, self-imposed prison. When did we see in history Europe beginning to give back power to the beast? 1929. When Benito Mussolini came on the scene and they entered into the Lateran Pax of 1929, we begin to see now the papacy growing in power. And so therefore, brothers and sisters and young people, this extract, this booklet, Six European States, the Church, we read this. The blow to papal prestige of the loss of its states in 1870, a fulfilment of Revelation 11 and Revelation 13, losing its temporal power, the blow to papal prestige of the loss of its states in 1870 is hard to imagine at this distant time. Pope Pius IX refused. Pope Pius IX goes in there, locks himself up in the Vatican, not coming out, spits the dummy, not coming out. Pope Pius IX, he was the Pope that introduced, that architected, that overarched the infallibility of the Pope. He brought that in. So here's Pope Pius IX refusing to recognise the change in sovereignty as Victor Emmanuel streamed up. He refused to accept Victor Emmanuel and his welded states and duchies of the Kingdom of Italy. He and his successors remained in self-imposed imprisonment within the Papal Palace, never venturing out for 60 years, prisoners of the Vatican, self-imposed. Well, Pope Pius XI accordingly decided to make an agreement with Mussolini, which resulted in the Lateran Pax of 1929. And Mussolini was prepared to go much further than the government of 1871. All oh, they offered them concessions. They offered the Pope back there in 1871 concession, but not enough for the Pope. I want it all or nothing. Thank you very much. So therefore, Mussolini comes on the scene and he says, I'm going to go much further than what happened back there in 1871, in that Mussolini recognised the Pope as the temporal ruler of the Vatican which was to become an independent sovereign state. Brothers and sisters and young people, not gonna, we're not going to go charging through a lot of history this afternoon, but a lot of exhortation this afternoon. But look at this. Just drink this in a little bit. This is an excerpt from the Lateran Concordate, witnessed by Benito Mussolini. Now listen to this. This is Europe beginning to give back her power and her kingdom to the beast. This is what it says. Whereas it was obligatory for the purpose of assuring the absolute visible independence of the Holy See, likewise to guarantee its indisputable sovereignty in international matters. Is that giving some power back to the papers? Oh, yeah. It's been found necessary to create under special conditions the Vatican City, recognising the full ownership, exclusive and absolute dominion and sovereign jurisdiction of the Holy See over that city. That is Revelation 17 
And looking at that verse there, where God had put in the hearts of these people to fulfill God's will and to agree and to begin to give their kingdom back to the beast in order that in the times of the Lord Jesus Christ's return, the papacy would be ruling in absolute power like the sea beast of Revelation chapter 13. Well, that's religion. That's politics. What's more important to you and me is the sixth vial having gone on and on, how it's impacting on the brotherhood. This, brothers and sisters and young people, God's plan, God's will, this is a test of faith and endurance to the brothers and sisters of Christ. And the tragedy is this. We are about to step on a way that God has prepared. And the tragedy is just just on the edge of stepping on this way that God has prepared for us. Tragically, some brothers and sisters have lost their way. Some brothers and sisters do not believe anymore in their heart that Jesus Christ is really coming back. Tragically, some young people do not believe in their heart that Christ is really coming back. Just before we're about to walk on a way, some have lost. Don't. Don't, brothers and sisters, young people, don't lose your way. Not now. Not at this end time. Not when we are about to walk on the way that God has so graciously prepared for you and me. Keep that in mind as we walk through this little section in the apocalypse of Revelation chapter 16. So we pick up the story and we begin in verse 12. And the sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river Euphrates. And the water thereof was dried up that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Now, we've given lectures over the years, and, and when we do lectures with interested friends, we, we go to this quotation sometimes, sometimes often, and we say, well, yeah, that's the drying up of the Ottoman Empire or that's the drying up of the, of, of the Turkish Empire, of Turkey. We know that. Some of our young people, those new to the truth perhaps, may not be able to prove that. How do we prove that this that this great river Euphrates scripturally is talking about the drying up of a world empire. How do we prove that? Do we have little notes in our margin? Do we have little cross-references? Well, if you haven't got this cross-reference in your margin, it's a good one to have there. Isaiah 8 and verse 7, the great river Euphrates. Well, if we were to go back, which we won't, we'll put it on the screen here, Isaiah 8 and verse 7, what do we read about the great river Euphrates? Well, in Isaiah 8 and verse 7, now, therefore, behold, Yahweh bringeth upon them, Assyria, or upon Israel, the waters of the river, strong and many, even the king of Assyria and all his glory. And he, the king of Assyria, shall come over his channels and over his banks. So here we are. We're reading God bringing judgment upon Israel, but he's using Assyria and calling Assyria a river, a river that floods. So the Euphrates is used symbolically as a flooding river whereby judgments would come. Now, you couple that with these words out of Joshua 24 and verse 3, we kind of get this real flavour. God says, I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood. 
So here are two Old Testament quotations that not only refer to the Euphrates, but refer to the Euphrates as a flood, a flooding river. That very is apt, isn't it? In Revelation 16, the great river Euphrates was dried up, this great flood. Remember, in the sixth trumpet, God would have these four Turkoman tribes. It would be a Turkish flood in the sixth trumpet. And now in the sixth vial, that great flood is going to dry up. So therefore, we have this, this Turkish empire, this Ottoman empire. Here it is in 1580 in the zenith of its power. And there you may be able to see, maybe not from back there, but there you'll be able to see the Euphrates River beginning in the mountains of Armenia and then flowing all the way, all the way, never leaving the precincts of the Ottoman Empire, a very fitting symbol. All the way does the Euphrates flow through the Ottoman Empire and empties into the Persian Gulf, a very fitting symbol of this great military power of the Ottoman Empire. Brothers and sisters and young people, why is God doing this? Why, why is God drying up this great Ottoman Empire? What, why? Is he doing it to show us how powerful he is? We know how powerful he is. Is God doing this to show us that he works in the nations and he is in, we know he works in the nation. We know he's in control. Why is he doing it? Well, he's doing it, brothers and sisters, that a way might be prepared. The way. That's why he's drying up this great empire. That a way might be opened up, a way of the kings of the east. Now, literally in the Greek, some of you would have this in your margin, literally in the Greek, the kings who are out of the sun's rising. Of course, we read in Revelation 5 and verse 10, and they sung a new song, and we are kings and priests with the Lord Jesus Christ. Kings, we, kings and priests with the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 17 and verse 14, he is king of kings. Ah, so this way, the drying up of this great Ottoman Empire is for you and me. It's that you and me might walk that way who are the kings who are out of the sun's rising, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he rose from the dead and gave you and me a hope of life to be joined with him in the age to come. You know, brothers and sisters and young people, this drying up of the river Euphrates was typically set down in the Bible 2,000 years ago. And when we read it as Bible students, we are amazed at this type in the Old Testament that would speak wonderfully of the great, great fulfilment that would yet to come. I want to walk you for a couple of minutes through Isaiah 41, 44 and 45. Have a look at this. This Revelation 16 prophecy was typically set down. Look at the detail and look at the type in Isaiah 41. A couple of verses out of each of these chapters to see the amazing way that God had this cameoed out 2,000 years ago. Well, we come to Isaiah and we come to verse 1 and verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 41. And, and brothers and sisters and young people, as we begin to read Isaiah 41, the chapter begins with a rebuke from God, a challenge from God. Keep silence before me, O coasts of the earth. God is challenging Babylon. Be still. Listen 
O coasts of the earth. Listen, Babylon. And then when you come into verse 2, there are all of these questions that tumble out from God. And God says this in verse 2. Who raised up the righteous man from the east and called him to his foot? Now, that's not a very good translation. Rotherham translates that first little bit in there in verse 2. Who raised up one from the east in righteousness? The east? Oh, now we start to see some little echoes here. We're talking about the kings of the east. God says, who raised up one from the east in my righteousness? So we're talking about Cyrus. And God's saying, I raised up a man from the east in my righteousness. Why did he do that, brothers and sisters? Cyrus, the Persian, raised up in God's righteousness to bring his judgment on Babylon. Oh, you're going to see that here. One from the east in the righteousness of God to bring judgment on Babylon. What was Cyrus called? You know, come over to Isaiah 44. What did God call Cyrus? How did he address him? I've raised up one from the east. His job is to destroy Babylon. You know that. You come to verse, 40, uh, verse 24 in Isaiah 44. Verse 24, and God says this. Thus saith Yahweh, thy Redeemer, he that formed thee from the womb, I am Yahweh that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. I do that, says God. What else does God do? Verse 26, that confirmeth the word of his servant, that performeth the counsel of his messengers, that saith to Jerusalem, thou shalt be inhabited, to the cities of Judah, thou shalt be built, I will raise up the decayed places thereof, that saith to the deep, be dry. We're talking about the drying up of a great river. Be dry, and I will dry up thy rivers. That's what Cyrus did, brothers and sisters and young people. He dried up a river to gain access to the city. He dried up the river Euphrates. He rerouted the river Euphrates and emptied its contents into a nearby lake that he might walk thigh deep, his men might walk thigh deep through the dried up river Euphrates, that they might come as a way. The Euphrates, the dried up Euphrates, was a way to destroy Babylon. And 160 years before Cyrus was born, God said this about him in verse 28 of chapter 44. Thus saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. And you spill into verse 1, thus saith Yahweh to his Messiah. Cyrus is called the Messiah. I have holden to subdue nations before thee. I will loose the loins of kings to open before him this Cyrus, this one from the east, the shepherd, the Messiah, I will loose before him. I will open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. Brothers and sisters and young people, when Cyrus and his two captains, Gadotus and Gobrius, walking thigh deep through the dried-up river Euphrates, they stepped up onto the platform, and they came to these two Babylonish gates, and they leaned against the gates, and the gates opened because someone had forgot to shut them the night before. And God says... The two lead gates shall not be shut. God was at work 
providing a way through the dried up river Euphrates for this one from the east, the shepherd and the Messiah, to come and destroy Babylon. Do you know Cyrus's name in Persia means the sun, S-U-N. And Cyrus's name in Hebrew means one like unto the air. And he was a forerunner of the true son of righteousness and the true heir of the world who would one day come and destroy Babylon and save Israel. But, you know, Cyrus wasn't alone. He had with him a group of fellows. Now, who knows who they were? Who knows what this group of fellows were called? The immortals. Good. How many of them were they? Excellent. Cyrus had with him 10,000 immortals. Why were they called immortals? They never declined in number. As soon as some of them fell, they replaced them immediately. They were always there or so it appeared. And what did they wear when they went into battle? They wore white robes. Here is a one from the east called the shepherd and the Messiah who would go through the dried up river Euphrates to destroy Babylon. And here is a man that's got with him his 10,000 immortals and they're wearing white robes. That is Revelation 19. Come with me, brothers and sisters, to Revelation 19. What an amazing thing, typically set down over 2,000 years ago, and we've got a cameo of a greater work of the true son, the true heir in the age to come. Well, this is Revelation 19. Immortals? Verse 14, Revelation 19. And the armies which were in heaven followed him, the Lord Jesus Christ, upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And what's the purpose? What's the purpose of following the Lord Jesus Christ on these horses in white linen? The reason and the purpose is in verse 19. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him, but sat upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken with him, the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worship his image. And these both were cast into a lake of fire and lake of brimstone. Brothers and sisters, we, we in Revelation 19 are going to be going up a dried river Euphrates as a way to destroy Babylon. And there, brothers and sisters, young people, the zenith of the Ottoman Empire dried up in order that a way might be prepared. And that way is there. When the Turks were driven out, brothers and sisters, just after the Great War, when they were driven out, there is the way. Now Israel are back. Now Israel can host the Battle of Armageddon. And we are there. And when that way, brothers and sisters, culminates in the Battle of Armageddon, we are going to move through the dried up river Euphrates to destroy Babylon. What a remarkable thing. Now, do you know, it's been suggested that Cyrus knew every one of his 10,000 immortals by name. He was good, but he wasn't that good. I mean, 10,000. I mean, I know people can 
can swap for an exam, but 10,000, particularly if 300 might have died the night before. And here he is, he's got a new group, 300, he's got to remember their names, swapping all night, his Cyrus. No way, could you imagine him going off to war the next day? All right, fellas, let's go. He's got them all assembled there and he's reading out their names. What about you, Bob, you ready? How about you, Alexander, you ready? What about you, Gatters? What about you? No way, brothers and sisters. No way. He was good, 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 but he wasn't that good. But I'll tell you this. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes, then the Lord Jesus Christ, as he calls his army together in order that we might go and destroy Babylon, the Lord Jesus Christ will know every one of his immortals' names without missing a beat because our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And the only reason Jesus Christ will not call your name out or my name out is because we have removed our names from the book of life. Christ won't. Jesus won't. We. Let's make sure, brothers and sisters, that when that roll call is made, our name is called and we don't lose our way. What an amazing exhortation that is, brothers and sisters. Well, Cyrus, as great as he was, as great as a man that he was and a great type that he was, said this. These words are on his tomb. He said, oh, man, whoever you are and wherever you come from, for I know you will come. I am Cyrus who won the Persians their empire. Do not therefore grudge me this little earth that covers my body. Well, the tomb raiders came, grave diggers came, scattered his bones. They did not respect that statement that this great man had put there on his tomb. And as great as he was, brothers and sisters, Cyrus and his immortals are history. They're dust, never to live again. But Jesus Christ and his immortals are future. And we will come from the dust and we will live forever if we don't lose our way, if our names are called out by our Lord, commander, our captain, our leader. Now, we've been saying, brothers and sisters, with respect to the work of the angels, how energetically and, and how frenetically the angels have been working for you and me and how we need to watch them and follow them with excitement and be involved in the work of the angels. Now, you may not see this, these, these losses that were attributed to the Ottoman Empire there, but this Ottoman Empire would dry from the outside in, just like a river, not from the centre. There weren't little bits that fragmented here, then some in there, and then some back there, and some in there. It would dry from the outside in. Now, I want to share with you a couple of little stories taken from Eureka and one that's a bit more relevant, well, a bit more closely related to us as far as dates are concerned. Share with you three little stories just to show how the angels were potent in their activity, bringing together the drying up of this great Ottoman Empire that the way of the kings might be prepared. What happened, brothers and sisters, first of all, with this drying up, how effective the angels were? What happened, first of all, was you had this situation that took place in this Bay of Navarino. Now, what happened? The, the Greeks wanted to break away from the Ottoman Empire. They wanted to, they wanted to 
to have their independence. They didn't want to be part of the Ottoman Empire anymore. <laughs> that upset the Turks. No end. The Ottoman Empire, we're not going to have a bar. We're not having anybody fragment from us. No way. A bit like Russia today. We're not having them break away. And therefore, the Turks came in and there was barbarism that could not be avoided from the world at large. The world could not hide themselves behind their hands and shut their ears. When this barbarism by the Turks in Greece was evident, they ripped out the vines, they ripped out the olive trees, there was pillage, there was rape. It was awful. And therefore, the world says we've got to act. We've got to do something about what the Turks are doing to Greece. And so in came the French, in came the Russians, in came the British. 26 ships. They steamed in or sailed into the Bay of Navarino. And as these 26 ships came in, French, British and Russian, as they came into the Bay of Navarino, they were met with 70 Turco-Egyptian ships. Oh, we don't want a war. France doesn't want a war. Britain doesn't want a war. Russia doesn't want a war. We just want to come in and talk. So they came into the bay. There's 26 facing off 70. And they sent an emissary, did the French, the British and the Russians. They sent an emissary across, across to the Turks to talk. Well, the, the, the Turks killed him, wrapped him up in the white flag, sent him back. And one very foolish person on the Turkish ships fired a shot across the British bow. You do not do that to the British. And in the next four hours, the next four hours, there was a naval war, the likes of which history had rarely seen. And 62 of those 70 ships were obliterated in four hours. There were angels on those boats. There were angels running around, looking this, doing this, watching this. And there was an angel there that just whispered in somebody's ear of the Turk ships and just fire a shot across the British bow. Cross it went. They were working, brothers and sisters. They were working. I tell you what, that's a very effective way of drying up your empire. There was the cream of their navy gone in four hours. They needed a navy, did the Turks, like you and I need a heart. Gone. Well, in the same year, over in Istanbul, the Turkish sultan was getting very, very upset with his janissaries. These janissaries were the steely troops that had been around for hundreds of years. Not the same blokes, otherwise they wouldn't be very effective fighters, would they? But these janissaries had been around for hundreds of years, and they were the steely troops of the Turks, of the Ottomans. What the Ottomans used to do, they used to get Christian boys. And if the boys were brainy, they'd steer them into the area of academia. If the boys were brawny, muscles, they'd push them into the area of fighting and the janissaries. Well, the Sultan of Turkey was getting really upset with the janissaries because the janissaries were becoming indolent and lazy, a bit like the Praetorian Guard in the times of pagan. Oh, and, 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 the, and the Sultan's going, we need to learn new ways of warfare. We need to learn new... We're not going to be the, the great mighty janissaries unless we start moving with the time. You need staff development, boys. Ah, staff development. Just give me another DVD and let me go to the bars. They were indolent and they were lazy. And that so upset the soldier. He was so upset that he's going to do them in. And so he invited them to a square in Istanbul called Etmadan. And he invited his 30,000 janissary crack troops. And he said, fellas, come here. I want, I, want to give you a, I want to give you a certificate of commendation. I want to give you an award. Got him in there, put his regular troops up on the parapet and blew them to bits. His own men. There were angels moving him and causing this empire to dry up very, very quickly. Well, something a bit closer to home, brothers and sisters and young people, something we might know a little bit more about, and that is the Great War. Look at the events of the angels working in the Great War to bring about this drying up of the Ottoman Empire. 
Well, here we were in the Dardanelles, the Great War. Well, the Brits were out there, brothers and sisters, the Brits, the French and the Russians. They were looking over there at the sick old man of the East. They called the Ottomans the sick old man of the East. And there were the Brits, there were the French, there were the Russians. They were just rubbing their hands again. We're, we're going to carve this old man up. We're going to have his, we're going to have his house. And the Brits thought, we'll come in here. We're the Brits, Royal Britannia. We just have to sail up the Dardanelles, blow the Turks out of the peninsula, sail into Constantinople, give Constantinople to the Russians, and we'll divide up the rest between the Brits and the French. Brothers and sisters, they couldn't do it. The British came in here. They tried to blow the Turks out from their ships. Couldn't do it. So they had to land on Gallipoli. And Gallipoli was a disaster, an absolute disaster. You know the story. They couldn't make any headway. They had to sneak out. In the end, they had to leave. They left funny little guns with little triggers to make out they were still there. Guns were going off every now and then with little weights on them. So the Turks, and they were slinking away. And the British, the Anzacs, had to come out of their brothers and sisters and God forced them down into Egypt. And they became the Egyptian expeditionary force. And down in Egypt, they then moved from the outside in and they dried up the river as they came in and took Palestine. And they dried up in fulfillment of the words of Revelation 16. If Britain had come in here to take the very centre and core of this, it would have been out of sync and out of step with Bible prophecy. And besides which, if Britain had come in here and taken Constantinople and given Constantinople to the Russians and then entered into a, into an, into a treaty with the, with the Ottomans, they may never, ever have taken the Ottomans out of Palestine. No, God says. Gallipoli will be a disaster because it's not going to be dried up from the centre. It's going to be dried up from the outside in. What an amazing thing. Well, in this context, the Lord Jesus Christ, John, hearing these prophecies, says this. I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm not going to go down the traditional line and say dragon is Russia and Constantinople, which it is, or the beast is Catholic Europe, which it is, and the false prophet is the papacy, which it is. I'm not going to go down that track. I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about the three unclean spirits like frogs in the ecclesia. There are frogs hopping up the Christadelphian doors and wanting to be let in. There are frogs hopping up on Christadelphian seats and going croak, croak, croak. What are they doing? What are they saying? And why are they frogs? Well, when you go back to the origin of the frogs, many of us know the frogs originated from the Frankish kings who used the three frogs as their emblem. And there we have the frogs who originated from the marshlands of Westphalia, and then they spilled down into this area of Gaul. Here's the shield of Paramon in 420. They had these emblems, the Frankish barbaric kings. Now look at what Gibbon says about the Franks, and then you'll start to get the idea of what this idea of frogs and spirit of frogs is really all about. Look what Gibbon says about the barbaric Franks who had this emblem. The love of liberty was the ruling passion of the Frankish barbarians. They deserved, they assumed, 
they maintained the honourable epithet of free man. Don't you tell me what to do. Don't you tell me what to say. Don't you tell me how to think. I'm a free man. I'm a frank. Ever wondered where that expression comes from? Hey, let me be frank with you. That's where it comes from. Let me be frank with you. Let me be free to say what I want. That's where it originated, that expression. And here they are. I'm a free man. Don't you tell me what to do. Don't you tell me what to say. Don't you tell me how to think. They're knocking on Christadelphian doors and frogs are croaking in Christadelphian ecclesias. I'm a free man. I'm a free thinker. Don't you hamstring me to that. Don't you make me do that. I'm not constrained by anything, aren't we? We don't belong to ourselves. We're not free to do what we like. We have been bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We are owned by him. Conform? Of course we have to conform, brothers and sisters. Being in the truth is being about conforming to our Lord and following his pattern. But there's the spirit. Well, it didn't stay with the barbarish Franks. It then moved into religion. Of course it did. The Franks then became the French. Well, there we are. There's Clovis, a Frankish barbarian. He was converted to Catholicism. What a sham that was. And there it was. We go from the barbarians now to a Christian environment. Clovis baptised at Reims on Christmas. What a sham his conversion was. There's his wife. She was a Catholic. And Clovis is going off to fight the Alemanni, another group of barbarians. He's a Frankish king. And his wife knew that Clovis was a little bit superstitious and he was a little bit prone to miracles when they happened. And so his wife said to Clovis, look, you're going off to fight the Alemanni. I'll, I'll give you a cross. Put it in your pocket. If things don't go well, say a prayer and you will win the battle. So there's Clovis is out there fighting the Alemanni and things were going okay. All of a sudden the battle turned. Clovis remembered, I've got a cross here. Pulls out the cross, says a prayer and the battle turned. God was working. The angels were working, not his little cross, let me tell you. And the battle turned. And then Clovis was amazed. This is fantastic. And he says, I want to be. And all his men were chanting, let's be converted to Catholicism. No wonder they were called the old son of the church. No wonder the French were called the eldest son of the church. Of course they were. First to be converted. What an amazing thing. Well, brothers and sisters, there's his shield. There's the three frogs, and there's the fleur-de-lis, the three lilies. Both come from the marshlands. But that was hierarchical. This was common. And do you know, we considered, did we not, Henry IV, King of France, the first of the Bourbon kings, Louis XVI, last of the Bourbon kings in the French Revolution. There is the shield of the House of Bourbon. Where's the frog? Not there. He's got the lilies. There's lilies all over the place. They're upper, upper class. And as soon as the monarchy was removed in the French Revolution, out went the lily with Louis and in came the frogs. Liberty, equality and fraternity. Well, brothers and sisters, the frog. The frog is only used in two places in the Bible. Exodus 8 and Revelation 16. Oh, there's a commentary in Psalm 78 on Exodus 8. Two contexts of the frog. It was an Egyptian deity. It was a pagan god. It spoke of idolatry. It spoke of liberty. I want you to come back, and we're not going to go really long in this study. I'm watching the clock. Don't you worry. It's all good. I know it's a hard session. This is the lunch break. Let me have a look, see if you're asleep. You're not doing too bad. Some of you are leaning there, and some of you have got masks on, so it's pretty hard to tell, you know. It's very hard to tell. If you had sunglasses and masks, it would be hopeless. You could be snoring away, and I wouldn't even know the difference. Right. Exodus 8, brothers and sisters, young people. Very quickly, Exodus 8. Look where the first use. 
And there's frogs all over this chapter. All over this. Eleven times frogs are used in this chapter. First time in the Bible. Look at the context. Look where frogs coming. You see now why it's appropriate to be used in Revelation and 16. Here we are in verse 8, Exodus 8. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat Yahweh that he takes away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go, that they might, sacri- that they might engage in religious exercise. Take the frogs away and you can have freedom to worship. That's the context within which he's lying. He's got no intention of letting them have freedom of worship. So when the frog comes into the Bible, it's in the context of a false promise of liberty, religious liberty. And that's what the frog does in this world. It offers you and me liberty to think what we like, to do what we like, and to say what we like, and it's wrong, it's false, and it's a lie. The end result of this way of thinking is Psalm 78. This is the commentary on Exodus chapter 8. Now look at what the frog does, and you see now why the Lord Jesus Christ and why God has used this as a symbol. Psalm 78, false promise of liberty. I'll let you go. Please take the frogs away, and you can have freedom to worship. Well, Psalm 78, as it comments on Exodus 8, says this, brothers and sisters and young people. Psalm 78, look how verse 1 of Psalm 78 starts off. Verse 1 says this, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. Oh, we're going to learn some things about Israel's past. We're going to learn the little story and we're going to learn the lessons from it. Cast your eye over verse 45. Verse 45, here's the lessons. He sent diverse sorts of flies among them, which devoured them, and frogs which corrupted them, as it is in the Hebrew, which caused them to decay. Brothers and sisters, Pharaoh was saying, take away the frogs and I will let you go free. But they weren't set free. They were locked. They were locked in the vice-like grip of Pharaoh and they weren't given liberty. Brothers and sisters, young people, When God looks down from heaven, he doesn't see men running free. We sometimes look out the world and we think, is the evil prophecy prospering? Do the evil look like, the wicked look like they're prospering? And sometimes they do. But God looks at men and women and he sees them with a ball and chain on this wrist and a ball and chain on this wrist. He sees them with a ball and chain. They're locked in servitude. They're locked in bondage. He sees a ball and chain on that hand and he sees them wading thigh deep in stinking, corrupt, dead frogs. That is what God sees. The world doesn't. They say, let's come out and have fun. Let's do this. Let's get drunk. Let's do this. Let's go to a nightclub. Let's dance all night. Let's do this. And they think it's fun. And God says, they're locked, locked. Now, young people, you imagine if somebody said to you, hey, come over to my place. Tonight we're having a party. And you go, mm, I'm not sure I should be one. I'm like, okay, I'll come and have a look. So over you go, and they're having a party. And they're doing what they do at parties. And then all of a sudden you cast your eye down to the end of the backyard and you see there's an empty swimming pool. And you went, oh, that's interesting. No water in it. And all of a sudden, as the party starts gathering momentum, somebody says, hey, hey, let's, all, let's do something that's fun. Let's fill up the swimming pool with dead frogs. 
and you're watching this. Let's do something else. It's real fun. Let's put a ball and chain on this hand and a ball and chain on this hand and let's put a ball and chain on this foot and, a ball, and let's jump in and swim through the dead stinking ground. You'd think they'd lost their marbles. But that's exactly what the world wants you and me to do. That's what you, they want you and me to walk through bondage, with bondage and, 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 and walk through these corrupt frogs. Oh, brothers, now, in this context, in this context, our Lord Jesus Christ says this. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Did you note something here? All the way through chapter 16, it's been John and the angel. The angel and John. The angel says, see that? John says, got it. The angel says, look at that. Got it. This is the angel and John. Where's Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is in heaven. And he's watching this and he sees this context now. He sees the brothers and sisters. He sees the pressure that's on the ecclesia in the last days. He sees this spirit of don't you tell me what to do. Don't you tell me what to say. Don't you tell me how to think. Jesus sees it. He knows the burden. He knows the challenge. And interrupting the dialogue, John and the angel, the angel interrupting, it's like Jesus takes the pen from John and Jesus Christ speaks, behold, I come in the context of he loves us so much. He cares for us so much that in this spirit of, oh, I'm going to do it, I'm a free man. He says, blessed is he that watches. And the context within which he gives that, brothers and sisters, is what he would have observed as a boy and he went, when he went through Jerusalem. Because he takes that theme, I come as a thief, blessed is he that keeps his garments from what Jesus would have witnessed in the practice of the temple guards who went on duty every night in the temple in the times of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when these temple guards went on every night, this is where he gets this expression, blessed is he that keeps his garments. I believe he's taking it from what he observed in the temple. The guards went on duty every night. And when they did, brothers and sisters, 240 Levites and 30 priests were appointed to guard 24 gates. 24 gates? And you need 270 priests? It's a bit of an overkill. No. Frogs are dangerous. They get in your drawers. They get in your socks. They get in your pots and pans, in the spaghetti bolognese, in the curries. They're all over the place. If you see a frog, squash it. They're dangerous. And here it is, brothers and sisters. Here are the priests, 270 of them, to guard 24 gates. And they were to be awake and alert to the entry of anything unclean or forbidden. And then when they went on duty at dusk, they were given a distinguishing white garment. This happened in the times of Jesus. And when they were given that garment at dusk to watch all night, then they watched from dusk until dawn without relief. The temple guard would come around. He wouldn't come around and say, listen, I know it's going to be a long night. From dusk until dawn, especially if you haven't much sleep during the day. Look, I'll come around at about 3 o'clock. I'll be there about 3 and we'll have a coffee together. No, he didn't say that. The temple guard would come around. The captain of the temple guards would come around. And if you were caught sleeping on your watch, the very next morning you were stripped of your white garment. It was burnt in front of you and your fellows and you were sent away naked, never to return to temple worship again. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ says. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that keepeth his garments, 
Brothers and sisters, it is a blessed thing to go on duty at dusk in the Gentile night and to watch all night with our white gums to stop anything coming into our homes that is forbidden or unclean, to stop anything coming into our ecclesias that is forbidden and unclean, to stop anything from coming into our hearts that is forbidden and unclean. It's a blessed thing to do that. And we rejoice that our Lord Jesus Christ is loving us to the point where he gives us that warning. Well, brothers and sisters, our next study, God willing, on Wednesday evening, we're going to then move. After that way we have journeyed along, we are now going to move through that journey into Europe and our study on Wednesday evening will be the seventh vial, our work with our blessed Lord, and the title will be The Lamb Shall Overcome Them. Thank you. Now, what we want to do this evening is we want to open a window to the future and step through that window and embark on a journey that will span 40 years. And as we do so, to help us along that way, we're going to look at predominantly two chapters of the apocalypse, chapter 10 and chapter 14, and show how these two chapters are inseparably linked. And to really get a, a good idea or a good handle on chapter 14, it's imperative that we understand content of chapter 10. When you bring them both together, this picture just explodes and we really see the import of this amazing prophecy. Do you know, brothers and sisters and young people, our entrance into the kingdom of God will be greatly enhanced by our ability to make chapters like chapter 10 and 14 a reality in our minds and in our lives. Keep that in mind as we walk through our study this evening. Now, Brother Sargent said this about prophecy, about vision. Brother Sargent said, it's to work. Okay, so that means we will... We'll just do it manually, shall we? No. Okay. Just bear with me for a minute, brothers and sisters, and just, um, just have a chat to yourselves here. Now, that's locked up. Let's see if that works. There we go. Brother Sargent said this about Bible prophecy. He said, the object of prophecy was always to reveal God to men and to keep men with God. And all down through history, our brothers and sisters, no matter what epoch they have lived in, have grasped hold of the power of prophecy and saw the need to be energised by those words and their closeness to God was greatly enriched and greatly enhanced. And, you know, when brothers and sisters lose their way, when young people use, lose their way, when ecclesias lose their way, very often, 
it's because they have lost sight of vision through the power of Bible prophecy. Let's not lose that vision. Brother Sargent also went on to say, prophecy is an instrument in the preparation of a people for the Lord and is given primarily for the benefit of those with whom God is working out his purpose of redemption. Bible prophecy keeps men with God. And so, brothers and sisters, we're talking about vision. And if ever there was a man that was wrapped in vision, if ever there was a man that was propelled in vision, it was the Apostle John. And John, in chapter 10, shows us how intricate and how, how, how personal his vision was. Now, we said a moment ago that we're going to compare chapter 10 with chapter 14 and see the value and the link between these two chapters. What I want to do is just to put our toe in the water, as it were, and just go and visit chapter 10 for a few moments. Then we'll come back and then we'll start drawing these two chapters together. Vision and the import of vision to the Apostle John. Well, Revelation chapter 10 Let's go back and just put our toe there and then we'll draw out and then we'll start to bring chapter 14 and chapter 10 together. We come to chapter 10 of Revelation and we look at verse 2. And in verse 2 of chapter 10, we read these words. And he had in his hand a little book open. And he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth. A lot more about this right foot on the sea and left foot on the earth in a moment. But then we spill down to verse 4. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, no, no, John, don't write a thing. Now, that mentally arrested John. I mean, we're in chapter 10 and he's been writing and writing and writing. His pen's been on fire. And all of a sudden he gets to this, this place where he was waiting. He was waiting to be transported into the future. He gets almost to the climax of the matter. And he's told, sorry, John, you're not writing this at all. Why? Why was he told not to write it? Was this too terrible to write? Was it too awful to hear or to bear? Could not be. There are many scriptures, both in Old and New Testament, that talk about these events in graphic detail. So it wasn't that it was too terrible, John, you can't write it. Well, brothers and sisters, was it too difficult to understand? Is that why you shouldn't be able to write? Couldn't be too difficult to understand. We read in the first chapter of the Apocalypse, blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear, and they that keep the words of this prophecy. No, it's not too difficult. It's not too terrible. Well, was it a secret? You can't write this, John, because this is a secret locked up for the end time. Couldn't be. Because these words were designed to encourage and to aspire, inspire brothers and sisters all the way down through the corridor of time. No, it's not too terrible, it's not too difficult, and it's not a secret. Why, John, were you not to write it? Well, you know, verse 8 of Revelation 10. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me and said, John, go and take the little book which is open. Verse 9. And I went to the angel and I said to him, give me the little book. And he said to me, take it and eat it up. And verse 10, and I took the little book 
out of the angel's hand, and I ate it up. And you notice all the action words there, brothers and sisters and young people. Go over there and take it. Say to the angel, give it to me, and then take it, and then eat it. The angel didn't say to John, now look, John, I know you've had a hard life. I know you're old. Stay over there. Just relax. Just recline. Just stay calm. I'll come over to you. Open your mouth and I will drip feed you these words. No, John, you've got to get up. You've got to go over there. You've got to ask for it. You've got to take it and you've got to eat it. God is not going to put our arm behind our back, brothers and sisters and young people, and force us into the kingdom. He's not going to force us to be inspired with the prophetic word. He expects us to do something. And it's a process of progress. Go. Take, ask, give it, take and eat. It's a progression, brothers and sisters and young people. God expects us to progress in our understanding and our desire to learn more about our role with our beloved Lord. John was told that when he ate that scroll, the future work that he's about to do went with him wherever he went in this life. He was inseparably connected to his future, as we saw on our exhortation last Sunday morning. That's why prophecy meant so much to John. It was part of him. And God says, eat this little scroll and it will never leave you and your vision will never be dulled. And so, brothers and sisters, we are going to consider this little scroll that John ate, showing us what we need to do with Bible prophecy. And here we are this evening considering the seventh vial contained therein, of course, are the seven thunder judgments of Almighty God. Now, when we have a look at this seventh vial, we're talking about 40 years, which are the most important and terrible in this world's history. And when you look at the span of the apocalypse, there are three chapters that are filled with the detail of these 40 years. You find that all of chapter 14, bar three verses, and we'll look at those three verses this evening. Revelation 14, all except three verses, are all about these 40 years, these most important and terrible in the history of the world. All of chapter 18 are about this seventh vial, all these 40 years, and all of chapter 19. Then we have part of chapter 16, these five verses, verses 17 through 21. Then we have part of chapter 17, verses 11 through 14. And then we have a little portion of Revelation 20, the first two verses, all speaking, all giving us a picture of this seventh vial, these seven thunder judgments, these 40 years. Now, when you have a look at them in chart form, and time does not permit us this evening to prove the events of the Jubilee period, this 50-year period. But when you have a look at this in chart form and see where we're going to be going this evening, we have here, of course, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the end of that 50-year period, we have the millennium beginning with the Jubilee year. Now, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and Armageddon bursts upon the earth, we have a period that has elapsed of 10 years. And during this 10 years, there's activity upon activity that takes place. 
Of course, during this 10 years, brothers and sisters, and I'm not suggesting for one moment that the judgment seat is going to take 10 years. I do not believe that the case at all. In fact, I believe the judgment seat will probably take the same amount of time as when Israel were assembled at Sinai when they came out of Egypt. But in this 10 years, activity, activity upon activity. Of course, during this period, the Arabs will have to be subdued over the east of Jordan. During this 10-year period, Egypt will be smitten and healed as Russia has moved out and moves up to Jerusalem for the Battle of Armageddon. During this 10-year period, the children of the blessed will be educated at Sinai during that 10 years. And of course, during that 10 years, the judgment seat will take place, of course, and the marriage of the Lamb. All that activity. Now, you notice that the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place toward the end of this 50-year period, just before the millennium opens up. Because when the guests are invited to the supper and the world is introduced to the bride, it will be done when the pseudo or false bride is removed. So when the false bride is removed, the true bride will be revealed to the world and the marriage supper will take place. So Armageddon bursts on the world scene. And therefore, subsequent to Armageddon, as many of us would know, there is that 40-year period from Armageddon to the beginning of the millennium, within which you have two epochs of time. You have a 10-year period, the mid-heaven proclamation, right on the heels of Armageddon. The world is told to get their house in order because the hour of God's judgment is about to come. And at the end of that mid-heaven proclamation, the city of Rome is destroyed. Those that have hearkened to the mid-heaven proclamation will work with the Lord Jesus Christ and the saints. They won't be subjected to this one hour of judgment or the 30 years of Catholic Europe being destroyed or the vintage of the earth. Now, this 10-year period and this 30-year period is the period that we're going to explore through Revelation 14 and Revelation 10. So, brothers and sisters, we start off looking at Revelation chapter 14. Now, what we want to do with Revelation 14 is something similar to what we did with Revelation 11 and Revelation 16. We want to have a look at the structure, and there's a couple of structures that we need to explore. And once we've got the structure together, and because there are some complex bits in Revelation 14, well, there are complex bits in lots of chapters of the apocalypse, and notwithstanding the complexity of chapter 12, the challenge of chapter 11, chapter 14 is right up there with the challenges. You've got angels coming out of altars. You've got angels emerging here, angels saying, don't put the sickle in, angels saying, now do it, now go. You've got all of this conversation and this activity going on, and there are verses that are not chronologically placed. So it's a challenging chapter, and we want to unpack this, open this up by having a look at some structures. And we'll use chapter 10 to help us along the way. Well, brothers and sisters, when we start to read Revelation 14, we are mentally and emotionally arrested with the Lamb and the 144,000. That's the immediate impression 
God has designed that we get as we start reading this. However, notwithstanding that amazing impression that should be uh, with us emotionally and mentally, there's something that also arrests us and, and, and offers us a little connection, an echo, and that is verse 2. When you read verse 2, I heard a voice from heaven, a voice from heaven. Now, now we are post-Armageddon. We are post the Lamb on Mount Zion and the 144,000. And after Armageddon and after the Lamb and the 144,000 are on Mount Zion, we've now got this voice from heaven. This voice are the brothers and sisters, the immortal saints, you and me, from heaven, from the political rulership in Jerusalem. So a voice goes out from Jerusalem. Now there's an echo. Because immediately a voice from heaven, your mind may swing to Revelation 10. I saw a mighty angel come down from heaven. This is the same heaven as it is here. I saw the brothers and sisters in Christ come from Jerusalem. So in chapter 10, we move from Jerusalem. In chapter 14, the voice goes from Jerusalem. Now, to see the two of them are synchronized and we're talking about the same time period, let's go back and see how it works in chapter 10 and then come back to chapter 14 and see how chapter 10 continues through the 14th chapter. Now, come back to chapter 10 and, and, and hear this, a mighty angel came out from Jerusalem. Verse 1, Revelation 10. And I saw a mighty angel come down from heaven, the political heavens of the world, clothed with a cloud and a rainbow was upon his head. His face was, as it were, the sun, uh, the sun and his feet were as pillars of fire. Now, I'm not going to go through that verse at all. I want to come to verse 2. He had in his hand a little book open. And he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth. Now, brothers and sisters, we sometimes call this, we sometimes call this the march of the angel of the bow. But of course, this is not the march. The march is finished. The work is done. The right foot is upon the sea and the left foot is upon the earth. The angel is rock still, or his feet is on fire as a testimony to the work that he's just done, but he's rock still. His work's finished. And that's evident by the fact that the little scroll is open. And that, work, that, that foot that comes down on the sea and the other left foot that comes down on the earth, the work is finished, the scroll is open, because in that scroll there is Revelation 14. There is Revelation 18. In that little scroll that's open, there is the completion of Revelation 19. There is the completion of part of Revelation 16. There is the completion of part of Revelation 17. There is the completion of part of Revelation 20. Done. Finished. Rock still. Now, what does it mean? Our right foot came on the sea and our left foot came down upon the earth. Well, what we see, brothers and sisters, is that history is going to repeat itself. So here we are. 
We just read, I saw a mighty angel, you and me, emerge from Jerusalem and we are going to set our right foot upon the sea and we're going to set our left foot upon the earth. The reference to the sea is reference to the sea beast of Revelation 13, verses 1 and 2. The reference to the foot on the earth has reference to the earth beast of Revelation 13. How does that work? Let's explore a small snippet of history and see how the history will repeat itself in this prophecy. So when it says our right foot came down upon the sea, we are talking about the Mediterranean powers, chief of which is the Gogian Confederacy, with its headquarters in Constantinople and Rome. I'll show you how that works in a moment. When our left foot comes down upon the earth, we are talking about the earth beast, Catholic Europe of Revelation 13 and verse 11. Now, brothers and sisters and young people, this is how it works. This is how this little scroll that's unrolled and the right foot and the left foot of Revelation chapter 10 are going to happen as history showed way, way, way back in time. Now, you would be aware of this little story, I'm sure, many of you. What happened, of course, with Constantine? We know that Constantine found it expedient to move his capital from Rome to Byzantium in 326 AD. And then in 330 AD, it was renamed Constantinople after Constantine. And when Constantine moved his seat of power from Rome to now Constantinople, he became the dragon in the East. And all the Catholic emperors thereafter became the dragon in the East. Oh, we thought we, we read about that, didn't we, in our studies, where the dragon gave power to the beast, the Bishop of Rome, and continued to give power, continued to give strength, continued to give support to the bishop in Rome. But there came a time in history where the dragon diminished its potency with respect to giving power to the beast. And the dragon began to, began to wane in its ability to give power to the beast by virtue of a number of things that happened, one of which was the Saracens. The Saracens, who, who kept biting and stinging with their scorpions' tails, began to weaken the dragon in the east. That was one of the reasons why the beast started to not get as much support from the dragon in the east. Another reason why this power began to dry up for the bishop in Rome was that there was a split between west and east over icons, over idols, and it became a rift. And what happened when this dragon began to lose its power, the sea beast needed to look for another champion. And so the sea beast, the papacy in those lower Mediterranean areas, looked to a new power that began to emerge over the Rhine, the Franks, Charlemagne. And therefore, the papacy, no longer being able to rely on the strength and support from the dragon in the east, began to gain their support and power as the sea beast 
morphed into the earth beast of Revelation 13. That is going to be repeated. When the Turks finally came in 1453 and took Constantinople, the people in Constantinople fled to Moscow and Moscow became the third Rome. But the dragon in Moscow is coming back. And when Russia comes down into Constantinople, we now have what previously was history is now prophecy. Because when Russia is now in Constantinople, in league with the sea beast, Rome, we, brothers and sisters, as the angel of the bow, are going to bring our right foot upon the Mediterranean powers, Constantinople and Rome. And when we destroy Russia on the mountains of Israel, our right foot has come down and will continue to come down until 10 years later, the city of Rome is destroyed. So the right foot in Revelation 10 is the work of destroying those Mediterranean powers over 10 years. The right foot upon the sea. And then, brothers and sisters, we will then turn our attention to the one hour of judgment, the vintage of the earth, the destruction of Catholic Europe, the earth beast. Because when we have destroyed Russia and Rome is gone, the papacy will look, as they did historically, look to the strength of Europe to continue their antagonism against Jesus Christ for the next 30 years, as was outworked in history. It will be seen again in the age to come. But even though the papacy will look to Europe for the strength in the next 30 years, our left foot is then going to come down upon the earth. Ten years, the right foot. Thirty years, the left foot. Forty years, and the little scroll that was opened, the work is complete. 14, 18, 19, 16, 17, and 20. Done. And we're about to enter the millennium. What an amazing thing, brothers and sisters. Is Russia interested in coming down again to Constantinople? We already looked, brothers and sisters, did we not, when Britain thought they could blow the Turks out of the Dardanelles or the peninsula, the Gallipoli Peninsula. We already looked in one of our studies where they were heading for Constantinople. And just after that great war of 1914, in 1917, remember we talked about the sick old man of the East and the French and the British were going to carve it up and give Russia Constantinople. It didn't happen because God drove them down into Egypt and dried up the river of the outside in. Does Russia want Constantinople? Russia certainly did, subsequent to the Great War. Does Russia want? Well, look what happened. Look what Russia said in 1917 when they were drafting the Balfour Declaration, when the Australian light horse were coming into Bishavia. Look, Russia said this. Do we want Constantinople? Oh, yeah. The third and last reason why we want Constantinople, said Russia, is that Constantinople is the cradle of our religion. We got our faith from Constantinople when she was still Byzantium. A thousand years ago, we called Constantinople Zagreb, the Tsar, 
the king, the lord among towns. And all the Slavs and all the Russians know it under this name. And for centuries, we have fought with the Turks. The liberation of Constantinople will crown the secular efforts of Russia, of the Russian people, and it will bring them to the cradle of their faith. And when Russia comes down, desperately wanting Constantinople for a raft of reasons, one of which is that, then we will begin our right foot upon the sea, culminating 10 years later with the destruction of Rome and then our left foot upon the centre of Europe, the earth. Well, brothers and sisters, here we have now transferring from chapter 10, the right foot and the left foot, the little open scroll of chapter 10, we now come into chapter 14 and see how this goes hand in glove. There's the Midheaven Proclamation. There is the right foot upon the sea. There is the one hour of judgment, which is the left foot upon the earth. Now, when you begin to read Revelation 14, watch this arrow. Revelation 14 begins there on the hills of Armageddon. Revelation 10 is there. The work is finished. The two feet are rock still. The little scroll is open. And when you look at the end of chapter 14, the end of chapter 14 is there. So chapter 14 encompasses the right and left foot or 40 years. Now, let's see how that outworks. Let's look at another structure of this 14th chapter. When you read it, the very first verse and the very last verse are little flashing lights. Because when you read verse 1 and you read verse 20, first and last verse, the chapter begins with a number and the chapter ends with a number. So in verse 1, the number is 144. Now, I'm going to leave out the word thousand. The chapter begins with a number, 144. The chapter ends with a number, 1,600, 1,600. I'm going to leave out the word furlongs for now. 144, 1,600. What do these numbers mean? And why are they bookends to this chapter? We're in no doubt that the 144, God says, is a number squared. We know that from Revelation chapter 7. Leaving out the thousand, when you go to chapter 7, as you know, 12 were taken from one tribe. 12 were taken from another tribe. There are 12 tribes. So God is saying, what I want you to do when you read this number, 144, it is 12. That's what's in your mind. It's 12. And then you square it. When you read this number, it's 40. And then you square it. Now, when you look at this first number, brothers and sisters, it says 144,000. Now, we looked at this when we had a look at the French Revolution. Do you remember? The names of men were destroyed. Do you remember Revelation 11 in the French Revolution? 
titles were obliterated. 7,000 complete names of men. And we said that the thousand in, in the French Revolution had reference to family. And we alluded to this quotation in Judges 6 and verse 15, where Gideon said, my family is the least. And when you margin, it says, my thousand is the least. So you've got this thousand and family interchange. In the French Revolution, family titles, hereditary titles were obliterated. Here is the same idea. Here we've got Israel, 12, and it is the perfected family of Israel, 12. The word thousand, we've got Israel as a family. And to add weight to that, brothers and sisters, having Christ's father's name written in their foreheads. Just so we don't miss the point, God says, I'm talking about you have been invited to embrace the family of Jesus Christ. You have been invited to have my father's name in your foreheads. It is a family. So we're introduced in chapter 14 about a perfected family who have a work to do. And that work is bound up in this last number. That's the first thing that we are, we are arrested with, with respect to this 14th chapter. Now, we're going to see how the right foot and the left foot from chapter 10 spill over into this chapter. Let's break it up, shall we? In the first five verses of of this 14th chapter, we have the characteristics of the perfected family that have got a work to do, a mighty work to do. And the characteristics you've read through there, brothers and sisters, these are they which are not defiled with women, they're, they're virgins, uh, they are the redeemed, they are the first fruits, there is no guile within them. So all these wonderful characteristics of the perfected family of Israel who have a work to do. That's a study within itself. Then when you come to verse 6 through 8, you have this little section here where an angel, an angel flies in mid-heaven. So this is right on the heels of Armageddon. And we finish this little section, verses 6 through 7, with another angel saying, Babylon is fallen. Brothers and sisters, this and young people, this is the mid-heaven proclamation. This is the right foot upon the sea. This is 10 years of Revelation 10. The right foot. And do you know what we're going to say? The mid-heaven proclamation? When Armageddon has just finished, you and I are going to proclaim. Were you thrilled to do this? Were you thrilled to say this? This is what we're going to say, brothers and sisters. With a loud voice, we're going to say this. This is the challenge to the world. We are going to say, fear God. There is the challenge to the atheist. Fear God. And then we're going to say, give glory to him. There's the challenge to the humanist. Him, not me, him, who hath made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. There is the challenge to the evolutionist. 
we, in that mid-heaven proclamation, on the heels of Armageddon, are going to say, there is no place in this world for the atheist, for the humanist, or the evolutionist. What a wonderful world that would be. Those three things that are eating away the fibre and morality of this world are going to be gone. Oh, can't wait to say to the atheist and the humanist and the evolutionist, pack your bag and go. God, him, heaven and earth, and the sea and the fountains of waters. What an amazing thing. So there is the right foot of Revelation 10. There is the 10-year period, the mid-heaven proclamation. Well, then, brothers and sisters, we find a third angel comes on the scene in verses 9 through 11. And this third angel is going to now bring the left foot upon the earth, Revelation 10. And here we have the 30-year period. The hour of judgment is coming. The mid-heaven proclamation is a proclamation to get your house in order. And many will repent. Many will see Jesus Christ as the king. And many will put their shoulder to the grindstone of the wheel. And they'll get in there and they will help. But many won't. And those that don't will suffer the hour of judgment that is coming, the vintage of the earth. And so there, brothers and sisters and young people, is the left foot upon the earth. There is the right foot upon the sea. So you can see how Revelation 10 and Revelation 14 start working together in sync. Now, brothers and sisters, in our exhortation last Sunday, do you remember when John was so overwhelmed with emotion that he fell down and he worshipped before the angel and the angel said, don't do it, John, stand up, we're in this together. And we said, how could he get so excited? It was just about the bride. And we went back to verses 1 and 2 and verse 3 and saw how he was locked in Patmos and he was under the awful wicked hand of Domitian and he suffered at the hand of Rome. Do you remember when Rome, he's just seen Rome obliterated. Well, brothers and sisters, and a hallelujah went up at the end of verse 2 in Revelation 19. Well, there's where Revelation 19 verses 1 and 2 fit. Right there at the end of the eighth verse of Revelation 14, after this right foot comes down on the sea, alleluia, Rome is gone. And then in Revelation 19, 30 years later in verse 3, which we saw in our exhortation, Catholic Europe is destroyed, alleluia. That's what got John excited. See, there you see Revelation 19 now comes into the play and we can see how that fits in with this scheme of things of Revelation 14 and Revelation chapter 10. What an amazing thing. Well, brothers and sisters, here's something that is challenging and also amazing in chapter 14. What you see after you've seen the right foot and the left foot and chapter 10 merge into chapter 14, what you see then is verse 13. <laughs> when you read verse 13, just kind of imagine this. You read verse 13 of Revelation 14 and it says this. And I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, John, write. Oh, now I can pick up my pen. Chapter 10, he said, don't write. Write, John. So, so John's watching and he's seeing this. And all of a sudden, gets, gets to a part in this chapter four. John, put your head down. Pick your pen up. Write. So he writes. And he writes and he says, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord 
From henceforth, yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labours and their works do follow. Oh, that's a complicated verse. We're going to unpack that in a minute. And after he's written this strange, almost cryptic little verse, you get to verse 14 and he looks up. All right? So he's been writing down here. He's been writing here. And then you get to verse 14 and he looks. That connects us to that verse there. I looked. I looked. What happens here, brothers and sisters, after he's been writing this little funny verse about blessed are they and, and, you know, he then looks up and what he sees is something different to this. What he sees is the harvest of the earth. This is Armageddon. I looked. I looked. This is Armageddon. But we've just had the Midheaven Proclamation. We've just had the destruction. But that's the apocalypse. Woo! Into the future. They come back. Let's have a little bit of detail here. How do we know? Well, this three verses chronologically belongs there. We should read this and then start reading verse 1 through chapter 14. Can we prove that? Is we just got, I looked to go on and, and this expression, the heart, is that the only bit of evidence? Have a look at this. John sees here in verses 18 through 20 a continuation of more detail of this left foot upon the earth. This is the vine of the earth. Sure, this is the one-hour judgment. This is the 30-year judgment of Catholic Europe. So verses 18 to 20 is the same event of verses 9 through 11. This is the same thing that we're talking about. The harvest of the earth, the vine of the earth. Now, we said that's Armageddon, which it is, and it belongs over there. Can we prove that? Well, we can by comparing this with this. Have a look at this. An angel, you and me, or portions of the saints, came out of the temple crying. Now, the temple's us. So this judgment emerges from the immortal saints. We're coming up from Sinai. We're coming to Jerusalem, and the harvest of the earth is going to break forth. And this strength and this, this water is going to emerge from the immortal saints, from the temple, just the temple. But when you come to this vintage of the earth, after Armageddon, after the lamb upon Mount Zion, it's not an angel or the temple. Another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven. So here we are. We are reigning in the political heavens. We are in Jerusalem. So this event is post-Armageddon. We are now enthroned in Jerusalem. But with Armageddon, we are not. We don't become the temple in heaven until after the Lamb is upon Mount Zion. So that's why that little section there, it's not referenced to the temple in heaven. It's referenced to the events of the immortal saints prior to being enthroned in Jerusalem. So, brothers and sisters, this number, 
having looked at the right foot upon the sea and the left foot upon the earth. Forty years. Let's have a look now at this number and to see whether, in fact, this 1,600 furlongs is to be interpreted as this 40-year period evidenced by these two feet. Here's the last verse that contains this 1,600. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse bridles, by the space of a 1,600 stadion. That's the Greek, stadion. It just simply means a measure, just a measure of distance. Not furlongs, just stadion, a measure. The blood came out of the winepress to the horse bridles there. The blood didn't come up to the horse flanks. It didn't come up to the horse's ears. It didn't come up to the horse's mouth or nose or eyes. It came up to the horse bridles. Why? Well, it's going to be judgment against those who are in control of this rebellion, who are in control of this antagonism against the Lord Jesus Christ and the saints. It is talking about judgment on the rider, those in control, the bridal men, if we can use that expression. And you know, brothers and sisters, judgment. There's a quotation in Jeremiah, all so applicable, and the context is so, so applicable. Jeremiah 51 and 21, I will I, and with thee, God says, I will break in pieces the horse and his rider. There's the connection. The horse and his rider, the horse and the bridle men. Now, just have a quick look at Jeremiah 51. Have a look at the context and have a look at how appropriate this is as it has a future application, very much locked in to Revelation 14. Jeremiah 51. Pick up the record in verse 21, as we have there on the screen. So Jeremiah 51, verse 21. God says, with thee, with thee, will I break in pieces the horse and his rider. With thee. Who's thee? Will I break in pieces the chariot and his rider? Well, verse 20. Thou art my battle axe and weapons of war. For with thee, my battle axe, I'm going to break in pieces the nations. With thee, my battle axe, I'm going to destroy kingdoms. Who is the battle axe? Who is the thee? Verse 19. The portion of Jacob. Is not like them, for he is the former of all things. And Israel is the rod of his inheritance. Yahweh of armies is his name. Brothers and sisters, when Elijah goes forth and brings Israel and brings them through the wilderness of the people, and as they fight their way through, they are God's battle axe. There are the Jews. There is Elijah. And there are a portion of the saints fighting their way through Europe, destroying Catholic Europe. Babylon. And here we are in Jeremiah 51. And in Jeremiah 50, you may know this, and in Jeremiah 51, Babylon is referred to no less than 55 
times. The whole context of this is Babylon, Babylon, Babylon. There it is in verse 1, Babylon. There it is in verse 6, Babylon. There it is in verse 7, Babylon. Verse 8, Babylon. Verse 9, Babylon. We won't go through 55 of them, but 55 times in Jeremiah 50 and Jeremiah, in two chapters, 55. You don't have to second guess the context. And with thee, God says, there is the latter-day fulfilment of those words. What an amazing thing. And so, brothers and sisters, this, this 40 squared or the square root of 1,600 is 40, like the square root of 144 is 12. Therefore, the length of space, this length of space, of the judgment that God is going to bring would be 600 1,600 stadium, or a certain measure of distance. What does it really mean? Well, the space of judgment has got to fit the context of the chapter, the right foot and the left foot. And therefore, the context of the chapter, the harvest of the earth, the vintage of the earth, they're the contexts, right foot, left foot, Harvest of the earth, that's the context. And therefore, this distance, this 1600, has got to fit the context. And when we get it fitting, we've got the right answer. We're on rock solid ground. And there, of course, is the question. How long from the reaping of the harvest? Revelation 14, by the Son of Man on the white cloud. And the end of the vintage judgments, chapter 14, when the millennium begins. How long? Well, the Old Testament tells us. We're told in Ezekiel 20. Verses 33 through 36. We're told in Isaiah 11, verses 11 and 16. We're told in Micah 7 and verse 15 that there's going to be a second exodus. And when you bring those three quotations together, it's coming a second return, as it was in the first, a 40-year period. That's the context. And therefore, brother, we have no problem in saying, what is the 1600 furlong? It's 40 squared, like 12 squared. This is the right foot and left foot, 10 and 30 years, 40 what an amazing thing God has prepared for us, brothers, to be thrilled with the way God writes this apocalypse. Now, here's the exhortation. After John sees this, writes all this, you come to verse 12 and John says, here is the patience of the saints. Here. Where, brothers and sisters? Here. Here. When the right foot on the sea, 10 years. Russia, Rome, gone. When the left foot comes on Catholic Europe, gone. And when those two have happened, here is what we've been waiting for. What have you been waiting for, brothers and sisters? To marry the lamb? Absolutely. What have you been waiting for? To be raised from the dead if you fall into the article of death? Absolutely. What have you been waiting for? Immortality? Absolutely. But what is the point of it all? If there are men and women out there thumbing their nose at God and blaspheming and wanting to rebel, what's the point? Where's the joy? Yes, we've married our bride, groom. Yes, we're we are immortal, brothers and sisters. But it's not until that work is finished, the seventh vial, that that is what we've been waiting for. Men and women now subject to Christ and giving glory to God. Here is the patience 
of the saints. Do I believe that? Look at this. Psalm 58, verses 10 through 11. The righteous shall rejoice when he seeth the vengeance. He shall wash his feet, left foot, right foot, or right foot upon the sea, left foot upon the earth, I should say. Feet, he shall wash his feet in the blood of the... Oh, they're not very nice words. In this day of non-discrimination, in this day of non-fundamentalism, in this day of humanism, it's not very nice. But God wrote it, and we're going to do it. We're going to wash our feet in the blood of the Lamb. Here is the patience of the saints, so that a man may say, verily, there is a reward for the righteous. Verily, he is a God that judges the earth. And then, brothers and sisters, having said that, then John writes this amazing little verse. Complicated when you first read it, but what a verse to encourage you and me. And I heard a voice from heaven say to me, write, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labours and their works do follow them. What does that verse mean? Well, when you read that expression, we've got there coloured in, it should be written this way. Blessed from this Time. Blessed from now. What time? Brothers and sisters, that time. When that time, the right foot and the left foot have expired, then we are blessed. And that locks into, here's the patience of the saints. This is what we've been waiting for. So John says, blessed from this time, when the seventh bile is finished and the millennium is about to begin, blessed from this time. And all those that have died in Jesus Christ see that as the blessed time. You see, brothers and sisters, if we were to go, which we won't, time is prohibitive, but if we were to go to Revelation 2 and verse 26, we read that we will have power over the nations and we shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall wash their feet in the blood of the Lamb. We shall rule them with a rod of iron. Now, why is that important or significant? Well, what ecclesia are we talking about? This is the ecclesia of these verses. We shall rule the nations with a rod of iron. We shall wash our feet in the blood of the wicked. That letter is the letter to Thyatira. And Thyatira had Jezebel, that woman, Babylon the Great. What a tie-up, brothers and sisters. We shall wash our feet in the blood of the wicked and destroy Catholic Europe. And that promise given in the letter to Thyatira in the context of the, of the beginnings of this Babylon the Great. Then we're told, brothers and sisters, that we are blessed from this time. And the time of blessedness, Brother Thomas says in Eureka, is when the smoke, or oh, there's a lot of smoke, when these two feet come down right and left. There's a lot of smoke when we wash our feet in the blood of the wicked. Brother Thomas says the time of blessedness at the end of the seventh vial is when the smoke has all cleared out of the temple and the saints have fully executed the judgment that is committed to them. 
And when that smoke, as Revelation 14 and 11 tell us, and as Revelation 15 verse 8 tell us, when that smoke is cleared from the temple, then we will, as we then walk into the millennium, we will be able to then execute our priestly role. We can't execute our priestly role when there's all smoke going around our heads and in the temple. And then, brothers and sisters, to encourage us, yes, Yes, saith the Spirit. From this point, when we've washed our feet in the wicked, in the blood of and they and all men and women thereafter are going to give their glory, are going to give the glory to God. When that happens, yes, that will be a blessed time, says the Spirit. And then the next part of the verse says that they may rest from their labors and their works to follow them. That's a complicated, torturous few English words. What that means. 